my moon is in Aquarius, which is why my emotional processing is all fucked up. <laughs> also, I have mental illness. X-Men, X-Men. In the 21st century, people mutants led by Magneto aim to destroy the world. Only hope is X-Men. Welcome to the Cerebro Secret Files, the bonus episodes of the X-Men podcast where a homo and his friends dig deep into the history of a homo superior. I'm your host, Connor Goldsmith, and I am here today with the inimitable Teeny Howard, guest of the very first Cerebro episode and two more besides writer most recently on Excalibur at Marvel, but about to launch Knights of X next month or in just a couple weeks, honestly, and Catwoman at DC. Teeny, how are you today? I'm great, Connor. How are you? <laughs> I'm good. I mean, we just saw each other a couple days ago. So in the time since you've relocated to my neck of the woods, a lot of our we've had a lot of unrecorded conversations. It's so. true. <laughs> which I, I love those. To record one. Yeah, those are great. And it's honestly, I think it was like after I did the third episode and I was like, okay, I've done three now. I'm gonna stop tormenting Connor's fans with my opinions. They all keep asking when you'll come back. Which is crazy. And you were like, let's do a Patreon. Because you were like, I don't know yeah. what other character I can talk about for that many minutes in a way that like is involved. Right. And and so many other characters have been done right. know, since we started. So yeah, but I, I figured this was great. Then we can just hang out and this can be us bothering each other for the week. We can just do it on Zoom this week. <laughs> I intend to bother you more probably after today. Yeah. So yeah, true. Actually, the- <laughs> I, have to, I literally have to come get things back from you. So yeah, yeah like you, you left in something like in my apartment. Two. So it's like fine. So, but yeah, I uh, also though will drag you back for a Bay the Blood Moon episode at some point. But I feel like we need to let Knights of X cook for a while first. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I agree. I would love to talk about Bay more, but I think I want to talk about her with fans on the page more before I talk. She needs to exist more before we before we dig yep. that deep. But I like that the Araki characters have been around long enough, some of them now since Ten of Swords, that they do qualify for an episode of Cerebro, which is kind of remarkable. I mean, you do need a full Zaladane of appearances, 12 issues. <laughs> she has more than crossed that threshold at this point. So she's a yeah. real breakout. Fans really love her and I'm really excited to have her on the team. Yeah, I, I loved her a lot. She was a character that like we all compulsively loved in the room even before we knew her name. Like Pepe drew it and you went that one. <laughs> well, I mean, more like in the room before we even were engaging artists. Like we had this, you know, we had this concept of like, so my recollection, and not to, you know, go too far into how the sausage is made, I don't want to destroy, like, the magic entirely, but... No, but this is exactly what... First of all, we're on the Patreon <laughs> with, like, 750 of our closest friends right now, and... Just the girls. Yeah, just the girlies, and they all love that stuff, so don't worry about that. Okay, so so my recollection, vaguely, it was we were kind of coming up with things that would be good, unique, weird challenges for a Ten of Swords games and, and mm-hmm. matches, basically thinking of matches, you know, right. that would be unconventional. And someone threw the idea that it's, I, I think it even may have been John, because, you know, if you read his work, you know, that under all that icy cold exterior, he's a romantic. I think it might have been him who had been like, there should be a marriage. Like, it would be, <laughs> be cool. Well, it's a fairy tale. I mean, it feels it's, like... Yeah, it's- 
you know, you need a wedding in a fairy tale. It's very fantasy to have a wedding. And it's, I think it was, and it's also kind of a sly, you know, like, oh, marriage can be a battle, you know? Right, yeah. I've been married for 12 years and it's like to my best friend and co-writer sometimes, so. It's also like very Futurama Death by Snoo a little bit. Like specifically the like, we're going to give Doug a huge wife is a funny, intrinsically funny idea. And I think, okay, so originally I think we had thought that wouldn't it be great if Apocalypse's wife, when we meet her, was very, like, like, what if- Was bigger than Apocalypse, right? Yeah, like, Like, what if he was the male spider, you know? And then there was this- Exactly. What if he's the big blue bird, but, like, there's then a giant gray bird that is the female, right? Like, that would be funny. Exactly. So we had kind of talked about that, like- but I think it just didn't stick one because we had some early, really gorgeous designs for her. Mm-hmm. That final design is gorgeous. She looks it's beautiful. Yeah. So cool. And then also because I, I just feel like it doesn't really work size wise on the page, right? Like it's no, because really he's already effect. so hulking that yes. I feel like it would, she would look like Briquette if you like really did yeah. the, you know? Yeah. Like if you wanted a full panel of her <laughs> just having a conversation, every other, you know, all the mutants in the panel would be the size of her shin. Like it just, it visually wouldn't really work. Right. So that I think, but we were into the idea that like. Bigger someone, than Doug can work. That's not that hard, right? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. But you know, there should be that. That we we liked the idea of someone having a big scary wife. Like we just loved mm-hmm. that. We we were all super into it. And not even as like, like, look, I if you haven't met me, like I'm 5'10 and I wear heels. Your husband has a big scary wife. Yeah, I mean, we're like the same height, but I wear heels everywhere. So <laughs> <laughs> like I, yeah, like I I love a short king. My husband is not short, but no, know, I'm, I'm, I'm here for the short king. He's taller than me, to be clear, just to defend his <laughs> honor. I'm just saying. You tower over both of us in those heels. You do. Yeah, like I'm always, I've always been the tall girl and I've had a lot of like time being really self-conscious in my life about that, about, you know, because there were times I dated guys in my life who were like five, six. Look, I think Robert Downey Jr. is very sexy. Like <laughs> Oscar Isaac's five, five is what I've heard. Uh, yeah, like, and who wouldn't? Who wouldn't let him just climb them like a tree? Yeah, just like, you know, carry him around in your shoulders. Have you seen the way he looks at Gwendolyn and Christie on the red carpet? He loves think, a big, scary woman. I think he, yeah, right, and no, and no, no joke, guys. <laughs> I will tell you so many times in like the X Slack when we were developing these characters, this Bay and Doug and the relationship. I would that post picture of the two of them, yeah. The pictures of just Oscar Isaac, like goo goo eyed up at like imposing Gwendolyn and Christie. <laughs> Speaking of hot, very short men, I always think of. Gwendolyn Christie and Sophie Turner on the red carpet with Kit Harrington in that one picture where yep. he's fully like tit level with them. Yeah. Because they're it's both like the top of his head. Like Sophie Turner's like 5'11 and Gwen Christie's like 6'3 and they're both in heels and he's just like, yeah. <laughs> he's can't like 5'6 and looks like. No, you can't wear flats on the runway. The judges will read you. Like you got to wear heels on the red carpet. <laughs> exactly. So you're just going to tower over the short kings of Hollywood. Yeah. No. So, so it was like not even like a, like Annalise Biss. Also tall. Yeah, is also tall. And she was one of our amazing editors in the X office before she transferred offices. And I miss her every day. God, um, we got to get her back. I love her so much. Avengers versus X-Men 2 is just the X-Slack seizing Annalise Bissett from the <laughs> Avengers office. <laughs> she's going to be back like, on the pod at some point. We've talked about it. We've got like a character chosen. She was great she's on honestly, the show. She's incredible at anything. Like she's a gift to any office. So I absolutely understand why she's an incredible <laughs> editor and a super hard worker and a big brain and just a, a a poet and a genius. I love her. Her influence on the first, you know, 24 issues of Excalibur and Ten of Swords, like cannot be underestimated. 
or cannot be overestimated. She did a lot. Is what cannot I'm saying. Cannot be overstated. Cannot be underestimated. I get exactly. You you said it right. But she is. Yeah, she has such a great sensibility. I feel like Vita Ayala's New Mutants, which everybody loves so much. Also, just talking to her in the Cipher episode, mm-hmm. like so much of that was that she and Vita had a real mind meld about yeah. like, what the book should be. And then, of course, obviously Vita and Rod Rice have like the ultimate creative mind yeah. meld going on. But yeah. Editorially, there was like a focus to it that seemed like it was because Annalise really loved those characters and understood what Vita was trying to do. And I like when editors get credit because it's nice. You yeah. don't see it that much, you know? Well, and it's, you know, the right kind of credit, right? Like, I mean, mm-hmm. a lot of people... You didn't write so the book, that- but like, you're... I mean, this that's what I do in my day job all day long. Like, I have... There are book, all these books on the shelf where... I gave notes. I wrote a whole letter. We spent hours on the phone talking about it. And it's not my book, but I do feel like I'm the book's godfather. And I'm like very proud yeah. when it wins the medal. You know what I mean? Like, You're like the midwife. You <laughs> yeah, know? Like, I, I often say that. I say like I midwife books. That's what I do. Yeah. I mean, and I think the best editors are like, like the best editors, I think what they do is they understand the DNA of what you're trying to do. And they bring mm-hmm. their expertise to helping you shape that and understand it. The best editors I've had, what they do is they point out when I'm off track from what they know I want to do. Like when I work with an editor, I like to get on the phone with them. Like Jessica Chen, my Catwoman editor and I are like constantly talking. Like I really like my editor to talk to me a lot and understand a lot about what I want the book to be so that when I go off track from that or when I deviate from that or when I'm not accomplishing that. That they're like, this feels like you're getting away from what you're trying to accomplish. And that is what brings you back. You need that sometimes. Yeah. And sometimes it's just a check-in. Sometimes I'm like, you know what? I'm actually pivoting away from that. I changed my mind. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But it's always really good to have someone and like, you know, Sarah Bunstadt is is great about this too. And Anita Okoye, who are my Knights of X editors, are great about that too. They're they're great about. I met Anita when she was at tour briefly. Well, she wasn't there briefly, but I met her briefly. I mean, when she was at tour, everybody said she was really great. So I was excited to see her join you guys. I'm excited to to meet her again now that I know that she's like an X-Men person and we could talk about it. Cause yeah. this was like, this was some work thing where I was like, hi, she, you know, you're the new editorialist. I think she was an editorial assistant at the time at tour. And I was just like, nice to meet you. Everybody says you're really great, you know, whatever. But I didn't get a chance to do much one-on-one time. If I had known we could have talked about X-Men, that would have been a much more <laughs> comprehensive conversation, I bet. Yeah, but now you'll have to like have her pick a character and have her on sometime. Right? Yeah, I mean, well, That'd she said- fun. So just for the Patreon girlies, she mentioned in that X-Men Monday like roundup that she loves Oya. And I think that would be a really cool character to have like a Nigerian-American woman on to talk about. So I'm the first black woman to edit any X-Men title as far as I know. So that's crazy. It's crazy and amazing. You know, it's the Beyonce headlining Coachella thing. Right, where it's like, no one ever? Really? Like, ain't ain't that about a bitch? Like, how is that possible? Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I feel you. It's cool. The, I, I really love as the X office has grown, you know, people come in and out and change and all that. We like, I think it was like Leah who mentioned in the X-Men Monday thing recently that it's like the X-Men Slack is the X office lately. It's been kind of like a fraternity or sorority. Like even when you graduate, you're still part you're of still it. You're still there, right? Yeah. Like you still, like we don't like, you know, revoke people's access if they're not writing a book for X amount of months. It's like we're we're all professionals, but we're also like our friends, we're family. We, you know, by and large, we're all still working together. So it's useful to be able to tag and chat with like Chip or Zeb or people sure. who 
you know, are maybe not writing an X book currently, but they are still in the Marvel universe and they're people that interact with us. And it's great to have that interaction. I mean, you know, the X office is not siloed off. We are still in the Marvel universe. More and more this year, honestly, like Kieran is really tying everybody in for the big summer event, which is exciting to see. Yeah. Yeah. And it's been great to have Kieran around. Well, he's an angel. I mean, yeah. (laughs) I mean, he is, he has been one of my favorite writers for a very long time. And the fact that like, you know, we're coworkers and and friends is uh, great. He's an incredible brain and just the most like funny, fun, down to earth guy. Every time we talk, we end up just spending at least 20 minutes talking about obscure tabletop RPGs that we're I mean, he, playing or have played. <laughs> he DMs me about episodes of Cerebro. Like, I've, I mean, I've, been, I've known Kieran through my day job for a long time, so we're like friends, but it is just funny to be when he's just like, I had this thought about your episode. And like, he's like, you know, and I'm like, thank you, yeah, Kieran. I'm excited about this feedback. He's, he's like that. And I love that. I don't take notes from many people on my episodes, but I will take any note on any of my episodes from Kieran Gillen. I'll tell you that for free. <laughs> That's good to know. If I have any notes, I'll just tell Kieran to tell them. You're also on my <laughs> list, but you don't listen to the show that often because I, I and that's not a, to call you out. I just know that like, no, I, because yeah, you're in the just, office, you don't want to get too influenced by like you and I, that's correct. if there's anything I need to influence you about that I feel deep in my gut, I'll just say it like 50 times while we're at lunch and eventually be like, shut the fuck up, Connor. I heard you the yeah, first and- time. <laughs> if I like it, I'll use it. Otherwise, shut up. <laughs> and then like, but also like we talk frequently enough that you're often like, oh, I had a conversation with this guest and I had the right. No, I'm just that. and I'm just kidding for anybody listening, by the oh, way, I'm just I'm yeah, not but, actually no, pestering. I, no, but I just because people will hear this, I'm not actually bullying Teeny to put things in her. Comments. Yes, he is. Help but, me. Help. But we do talk about <laughs> like a lot because we're good friends and we met through. Wow, you're writing my favorite character in the X-Men. We should get lunch or something. And then it blossomed from there. It's been really cool. No, I actually, to support your statement, I was actually just talking to Kieran this week and was telling him that I was like, I have to apologize, by the way, I, I have not read Once in Future deliberately. I desperately want because to. Because you're I, doing similar stuff in, in yeah, I, Excalibur Nights, yeah. Exactly. Like, I read almost everything Kieran puts out. I think he's brilliant. And it was like, it's like been painful to me to not read that book. But it also is because Kieran, I, because I read him really before I was, you know, writing comics professionally, he influenced. He's, he's an influence so on much your work. how I write comics. Yeah. yeah. So I know that him and I think similarly about a lot of things and about certain storytelling conventions. It's part of why his work is so important to me. So I was like, I, I can't read it because I will. I will, without even meaning to, want to do what he's doing. You're worried about absorbing things because you're like, well, if Kieran thought this about this Arthurian character, I should do something like, you know, like. Right. Like if it speaks to me, then I'll want to put that in my own work. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, so I have had, I I was just telling him, it's kind of like that with your podcast. It's like, I was just telling him this week. I was like, Kieran, I have it. And he was honestly, he was like, I'm kind of glad you have it. Like I was going to ask, but like, you know, and I was just like, yeah, I, I really want to, but it's hopefully going to be a while. Right. No, exactly. Because hopefully I'm going to be writing this book for quite some time. I'll be great. You know, when I someday take my bow, I'll get to crack open once in the future (laughs) and read it all and, you know, read it in a big sack. Absolutely. I feel like that's one that's going to read really well as like a run in trade also. I mean, Kieran always does. He's very novelistic. Like I waited until Wicked and the Divine was done to start reading it. And it was a long wait because with creator own stuff it could take a while but I was glad I did because it reads so good as just like 
And now sit down in your room with all the lights off and like read this with a little candle on for like, you know, four days. I'm going to tell a quick story and then we can talk about, I guess, me instead of Karen. When I, when Wicked and Divide 1 came out, I was, I had two jobs. Well, I was freelance writing and then I had two other jobs and I was in school. I don't know how I lived. A lot. Still a are. Lot. Always doing a lot, honestly. <laughs> Yeah. Being a professional writer, it turns out, means juggling a lot of of stuff. Yeah. But I still feel like in some ways, like now, because I'm like, I'm hugely grateful for the fact that I'm able to write less Mm -hmm. now because I'm able to spend more time and craft on it. Yeah. But at the time I didn't have that luxury, but I was working part-time at a comic shop and then part-time at a coffee shop. And they were like on the same like street downtown. So I would literally just like clock out of one job and walk to the other, or I would like walk back and forth all the time to get like free coffee and like, or I would, you know, like bring things because a couple of my coffee shop employees, coworkers, rather the coffee shop employees. Baristas, uh, the barista folk. The other baristas. So it was just like an indie place. It wasn't like a Starbucks. No, I get it. I, in grad school, I worked at a Barnes and Noble cafe, proudly serving Starbucks coffee, but it was not technically a Starbucks, which we had to explain. I manned the register and I always had to explain that to the people trying to use their Starbucks cards because your Starbucks card is not valid at a Barnes and Noble cafe. We do proudly serve Starbucks coffee, but we are not (laughs) a Starbucks. You still remember the spiel. I sure do. I worked at so many coffee shops. Remember Borders? Remember the Borders Cafe? I sure that that that's my. I mean, yeah, that was my childhood because in Mount Kisco, Mm -hmm. not far from Salem Center, there is this. It's so sad now because it's just been like this abandoned building in the middle of Mount Kisco for God, like a decade. I mean, maybe there's maybe some of it's been rented out or something, but we called it the Borders Castle. That's where I would sleep if I was a vampire I would, <laughs> I would like go to ground in the abandoned borders we call it the borders <laughs> castle because it was this gigantic borders complex and then when borders went under it was just like well here's the abandoned spooky building. if I were like now a kid in Mount Kisco that would be like the haunted house of my dreams because I'm, I don't think anyone's done anything with it because who's going to rent out a store that's like two levels and takes up like a whole block and yeah in like an area that's not otherwise right not super like cosmopolitan it's just like this is a town that exists we should take it over like like warrior style yeah exactly (laughs) exactly but yeah okay so when i was working at this coffee shop in this comic shop i remember i read we can divine one the day it came out and i like went to my shift at the coffee shop that day with like my number one and like ended up giving like leaving it in the giving it to one of my coworkers and leaving it in the back and like everyone read it it was just like it just sat there in the back like break room mm-hmm. and like even people that weren't like comic readers just read it because it was like oh you know I'm on my break and I don't want to start my phone or whatever so I'm just gonna flip through this comic book and that copy got so beat to hell and like I beat my comics to hell like I'm not a collector like I I don't even really read in physical anymore because I know Same. that I will like just tear it to bits <laughs> so I, I buy like nice hardcovers after they come out but I'm I'm just a digital reader now because exactly. like, I don't want to like, fuck it up if I want to read something as it's coming out I tend to read it in digital mostly just because I don't like the clutter of paper and I don't want I, like a million single issue floppies hanging around but my yeah, room yeah but if like I'm just at a comic shop and I see something that looks good just and grab I pick it, it up yeah. and I go to get like a burrito afterwards I'm absolutely like folding the back around mm-hmm. reading it one-handed getting burrito salsa on it and then I like roll it up and shove it in my purse like that's how I <laughs> treat and that issue of Wicked Divine got treated like that around and like it just went back and forth around like friends and I remember it was so beat to shit that I like got rid of it 
And I almost wish I hadn't because I feel mm-hmm. like it's more valuable than a pristine number one. It literally had like coffee stains. Like I would get curious. There's like a tail it. to this yes. comic, right? <laughs> like I would get them to sign it and like frame it because it was just like, it was like a talisman of how many people in my like little North Carolina town I got to read Wicked and Divine. <laughs> and like after that, like there were just several issues that we would just like, I would get mine early people would open pull lists or whatever. Right, yeah. so it became this like thing that we were all reading it like as it came out. And Saga was like that too in that crowd sex criminals was kind of like mm-hmm. that the, more, the more insane of us like me right um, <laughs> well it must be a trip now to be writing catwoman when chip is about to take over batman it is insane that's i mean the two of you are that is a brain trust i would love to be a fly on the wall for i feel like that's got to be a lot of fun i i have to admit even from within it makes a lot of sense it makes so much sense the two of you on batman and catwoman i'm like yeah that tracks like thinking of like in my mind, like if I were daydreaming, like who would I want to be? Who, if I were writing Catwoman, who is a Batman, I would want to write Batman, against, you know, yeah. with and against and for and uh, alongside and all those prepositions. Yeah, right. <laughs> and like Chip just feels like the galaxy brain choice that I wouldn't have come up with myself. But then it was like, yes, of course. Like, yeah, he's just, right. He's a writer I trust so much. Like, I, I can't say too much, but like, we have big plans. And I'm just really excited for us to be, you know, working together because we both have worked like in the X office. We understand. Right. We both love being collaborative. Chip and I have talked about other projects before. Like, we get along great. We work together great. We love to just like brainstorm. And I think he's brilliant. So the fact that he likes to do that with me, like everyone knows Chip is like fun and, and funny and everything, but he's like super kind and super brilliant. And people don't say that enough about him. So I'm like really, like he's an incredible storyteller and like so fun to work with and like a great friend. Like I'm just so stoked to be doing it with him. I'm really happy that he's getting that level of stage. I think he deserves it. And I don't I think he's ever had it before. I think things like Daredevil have like really proved that. Yeah, because, well, but that's what I'm saying is like Daredevil is a B-list book. Like I, people who love Daredevil love Daredevil, but Daredevil is not Spider-Man. Daredevil is not Batman. It's not X-Men the flagship. It's not one of yeah. those. And I think it's really cool for him to be on Batman. That's just like a cool win for weird comics i think like at the end of the day like chip zadarsky's batman is something that you could just say those three words to me and i'm like i will read that like yeah he's, <laughs> yeah he's a, he's a really it also i mean it gives me faith in the kind of storytelling that i want to do you know over at the distinguished competition because that's the choice that's such a choice that i love that it like seeing them have faith in his storytelling gives makes you like okay well the current it gives you faith in the higher-ups that they would make that choice it also gives me faith in what i'm doing you know like to know that i'm also working with people who support something that i also so support which is chip batman (laughs) they picked chip to write batman and that's perfect so maybe them picking me to write Catwoman was also perfect, right? Like that's like, <laughs> <Right>. a, <laughs> and that if they're going to let him do, he's also someone I really trust, like with his career, like mm-hmm. he's someone I've, I've gone to for he's advice. He's played it very and, smart. Yeah. I don't like know him. I talk about him. Like I know him. I don't, we have a lot of mutual <laughs> friends and I, everything I've ever heard about him is like, just that he's the, the best guy that there is. Yeah. And so it's like, you know, it just, it always feels good when you're in a, a hot seat to have a friend next to you. Mm-hmm. For sure. And, yeah. you know, Catwoman is by far the 
biggest thing I've done when it comes to a hot seat, you know, a, a character. It's a high profile gig. And especially coming in right after Ram V's run, which was very critically acclaimed. But your work so far in the on movie it, oh, coming out right. at the same time. Yeah. yeah. But so far, the reviews of your Catwoman have been very, very glowing as well. I've heard from people who are not typically DC readers, but who picked it up because they like the X-Men stuff and they've been following the X-Office writers and they've all been really enjoying it. So there's a lot of cool things going on right now for you, I think. Yeah, I was actually really, really stoked when I saw the movie because... Um... Like I didn't get any direction as like as far as like where I you know had to take Catwoman. Like I was very much asked, "What's your Catwoman?" and got to craft by and large, you know, what I wanted. Obviously, you didn't pitch; they came to you. So that's a different. Yeah, I mean, it's a shared universe, right? So it's like there's obviously certain certain limitations, but of by course, and large, yeah, I got to but... you know do what I wanted, and I just I was really happy because when I saw the movie, I was like this feels really cool in a way that's like similar to what I'm trying to do, but it didn't make me feel like, like, it's like, it made, it made, sometimes when you see something that's similar to what you're doing, it doesn't make you feel like you're, you know, doubling up. It makes you feel bolstered. Mm-hmm. Like it made me feel like, yeah, okay. I maybe do have my finger on the pulse of a certain aspect of that character right now, because somebody else kind of came to similar conclusions but Warner Brothers just put movie. out this billion dollar movie in which the character is characterized in a way similar to what I see. Like that makes, that's reassuring on some level, right? Like, yeah, you're like, like I'm it, in the zeitgeist. Like I get it. I get what people, I get what the company wants Catwoman to be and I'm doing my own thing that fits that. Yeah. And like realistically, like it's, it helps to know that it's like, yeah, that's like, I, I wasn't given that direction. I and mean, they sure as heck weren't told any, I mean, they've been working on that movie since For long before I started writing years, Right. Yeah. Yeah. And like, you know, I didn't know anything about it. And like, I don't follow like, you know, you know, superhero movie leaks and stuff. I usually just right. watch the trailer and then I watch the movie when it comes out. So it was cool. It was a cool feeling to be like, yeah, we're all like, some of these really brilliant Hollywood storytellers and me are both finding similar things to say about this character right now. And that's cool. That makes me feel like I'm onto something good. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Especially when the movie is so well received by fans on the same page. Catwoman is the best part of it. Like she usually is in anything she's in. So. Any Batman movie featuring Catwoman, Catwoman is the best part of it. That just, Correct. I don't think there's a single Catwoman adjacent Batman thing in which that's not true. Correct. Well, I put out a call to the Zala gang, to the House of Z tier members. The House of Dane. The House of Dane. For questions for you, I've organized them into questions about Excalibur and Knights, questions about Catwoman, and then questions about sort of being a comics pro generally. And I'm just going to hit you with them and we're going to chat about them and see what you think. And I think this will be a fun way for fans to interact without us needing to be like, okay, Teeny, can you also read like 20 years of back issues on character xyz so that we can do that whole episode first you know like sometimes people just want to ask you questions you don't do that many interviews so no. I think that people are eager to to hear what you have to say yeah and you know it's funny it's like I, it's not like i don't do interviews because i don't like talking to people it's that a lot of interviews are the same so it's like mm-hmm. i like doing interesting interviews so if you're listening and you want to interview me it helps if you have stuff to ask me that i've never been asked before like if you do a food podcast or something or like a fashion podcast and you want to ask me about stuff that's not comics, I'll come do it. I, 
like I love doing I love getting interviewed about stuff I've never been interviewed about before so I'm excited to hear these I questions. cannot talk about Krakow and Resurrection ever again however right. if you want my opinion on Vivian Westwood 1987 I've got thoughts you know like yeah <laughs> I also am not limited in what I can say about those topics right like go, I'm limited right. if you just want to get me on to see if you can squeeze out some info about the next six months of Catwoman I can't tell you anything but right. you know but if you want to have me on to talk about like you know I can talk to you for two hours about, you know, either the cure's disintegration or nine inch nails downward spiral. Take your pick. Like there you go. <laughs> right. Well, let's get into it. Shan Smith writes, hello, this is my first time submitting questions and I have a few. I love the pod. It's been a godsend as I've been trying to get caught up on everything. Please let Teeny know that she's one of my favorite comic writers out there and I've recommended Excalibur and Catwoman to everyone I know. Thank you. For Teeny. One, what was your favorite part about crafting the expanded other world? And will we get to see more of the cool realities like Hot Hive or Mercator? That is a great question. So I will never, ever forget the period of time during which I was building out other world because it was during the pandemic and during the like, you know, some of the earliest, scariest lockdowns. Mm -hmm. So crafting Otherworld became a real escape for me. And it was also one of the parts of Otherworld was, you know, obviously everything Jonathan did in Ten of Swords, I had input on and everything I did in Ten of Swords, he had input on, but there were certain things that, you know, were, he was like, I need you this. You were doing or, this and, and I was like, he yeah. was doing that. And I was, yeah, I had this requirement. He had that requirement. We were kind of shuffling our stories together, kind of like a deck of tarot cards. Oh. <laughs> but that was kind of one of the things where he was like, we, we had decided to break it out and make it bigger. And we had decided that we wanted 10 kingdoms or provinces. Right? I ended up going with provinces because 10 kingdoms reminded me of 10th kingdom and 10 realm. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we were like, we're going to do, we'll do these 10 like provinces. And that was kind of one of those things where John was like, what are your thoughts on like what these 10 or X provinces, obviously. Yeah, or right? X, yeah. And I <laughs> and this is a thing I've done before with Jonathan where he asks me a question and I'm just like, silent for three days and then he texts me like three days later and it's like did you get my email and I'm like yeah I'm sorry here's four pages I wrote that's very you actually not to call <laughs> you out but I feel like that's like I text you something and then like the next day I'm like hey not to be annoying but you're like no I'm thinking about it I'm like okay gotcha <laughs> great cool yeah so I'm like well here's four pages I wrote so other world was kind of like that where he was like do you have thoughts on like these kingdoms like what are your thoughts like break them out and I, I wrote back a lot like and the biggest part thing that I learned from that one, it was really fun because it was a scary time in the world and to get to literally jump into building an other world with mm. my, one of my favorite like writers and a mentor to me and a friend, like was just super fun and refreshing. We've Jonathan, all talked on those specific issues, like creation and stasis and sort like that is, it's some of my favorite work he did in the X office. Honestly, like, I think the two of you work really beautifully together. I'm excited to see. Thank you more of what you've developed for his Three Worlds, Three Moons project. Thank you. He's he's someone that I love working with. Some creatives just sync up and are like, we can make something really cool together. And you guys do that. We like a lot of the same things, mm -hmm. honestly, is like what that is. Like, he's also someone who I go to when I just am like, hey, I want to read a, a like a weird sci-fi novel. You like what, you know what I like, mm -hmm. like suggest me something. And, and nine times out of 10, he suggests me something. I go to get it from the library and I love it. Like, so we just, you know, we have similar interests and similar story beats and we like a lot of the same movies and stuff. So like it's, there's a shorthand when yeah. we work because we know we like some of the same things. So it was really fun to do that. And then will, will you get to see more? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
yeah, that's kind of one the big joy of nights, right? Is that I get to spend more time in other world in that you guys know what this place looks like now. There's, you know, if you don't, there's like a, there's maps, there's a wiki, get it. Like you can start with Knights of X1. It's written to be a, a jumping on point. So if you're like, I haven't been caught up, like if you didn't read Excalibur, that's fine. I'm not mad at you. You can read Knights of X. And if you like it, you can go back and read Excalibur. Right. Why not? And now it's book one. of. I mean, like now I feel actually to go to the fantasy model of it, you can start with Fellowship of the Ring very mm-hmm. easily. But if you go back and read The Hobbit, you get a lot of context that's interesting and cool. And I feel like Excalibur in retrospect, is the journey of Betsy Braddock becoming Captain Britain. And Knights of X is like, okay, Betsy Braddock is now and forever Captain Britain. Here's that story. Here's what yeah. it is. And it was also really fun. When I, once I clicked into the idea of making Otherworld the place where mutants are still hated and feared, hated and feared and hunted and in danger and all that, I was like, oh, this is perfect. They're stuck here. An other world that hates and fears them is a great tagline. I was proud of that one. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. I patted myself <laughs> on the back for that one. And when Rachel drops it in the in issue 26, in the last issue of Scarlet, when she's like, she's doing what she's always done, fighting for a world that hates and fears her. I'm like, fuck yeah, Rachel. Like, like, <laughs> like do it. Rachel's chrono skimmed outside the timeline. She knows the taglines. She knows yeah. what to say. Yeah. Rachel Summers There's in, in, what is this, Earth, what is it, it's 12, 12, 18 is ours, which is Jordan yeah. White's birthday. That's right. That's how I always remember it. Yeah. Rachel Chrono skimmed over to 12, 18. And, it was uh, just like, hmm, oh, like, here's how they advertise this I have this a tagline. Yeah. Yeah. Question two, Shan writes, I love the mythology that you and the rest of the X team have crafted for mutants through Excalibur and Ten of Swords. Are there any other parts of the mutant mythos that we're going to see in Knights of X? Well, I know of one really big one that I'm sure everybody's going to be excited to see in the first yeah. issue. But. Yeah, we're definitely playing with mutant iconography, mutant mythos, mutant quests and tales and treasures. Yeah. For sure. Yeah, you. that's a great question. And there are other aspects too. There are other bits of mutant lore and history that we're pulling at and, you know, doing what I really like doing and something I feel like I have always tried to do in the spirit of the great Grant Morrison is to take, you know, things that may have meant one thing and recontextualize them. And the reason I like that is because it's something that comics do that, you know, myth also does that I love, right? Mm -hmm. Like, you know, one of the things I say to people when it comes to continuity is when like they, you know, when they ask about it, I'm like, I don't know, did Zeus, you know, show up as a swan to have sex before or after he showed up as a cow to have sex? Right, like the, all of these matter. stories happen simultaneously and contradict each other and all like, you know, you got to take the narrative that you want and trace it. Through. Right. Like, do people really think that like the mythological understanding we have of, for example, Greek myths is all there was? Like, no, I'm sure there were a bunch of stories that have essentially fallen out of canon because no one remembered them. <laughs> I can tell you a bunch of them because I majored in it and there's a lot of really weird ones that just didn't hit. And ones I've never heard of because they died as an oral tradition before exactly. we ever heard them or they burned up in the library at Alexandria or whatever. Exactly. You know? like, we're missing we're most of the Dionysian plays. Like almost right. all of that shit is dead. So we have to speculate based on like critical reviews we have, a play that someone saw by Euripides that we don't have, which is very frustrating. <laughs> right. Like we only have like, you know, we have the Bacchae, but we don't have the rest of the run. Like... <laughs> Yeah, or we have the Goodreads review of Euripides' Lamia, but not the play, which is enormously frustrating. 
Yeah, I mean, and that's just, you know, and that's, again, like discounting the fact that there were probably just some historically bad runs of Apollo that no one remembers because they sucked. Yeah, (laughs) no, the third volume of Heracles was terrible and they just don't talk about it. It's a big dwy as far as the cult of Heracles. Exactly. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, that was a great question. Three, is there a world in which we will get to see Opaluna Saturnine and Emma Frost interact with one another? Well, I mean, you have to stay tuned to find out. Like, it, yeah, is that possible? People have been commenting on their resemblance, obviously, for some time. I still think if her hair was stark white like it was in the 80s, that it wouldn't be a problem. But... What did you say about mentioning something 50 times at lunch? <laughs> I think that was 51, and I'm done now. I can't ever say it again. I, someone was saying to me, they were like, How's that crusade going? I was like, Here's the thing, guys. Her hair has been yellow since 1995, and I'm trying my best, but there's only so much I could do. So, like, you know. No, you know what? Like, I. It... At this point, it would confuse new readers, yes. is the thing, yes. because it's been blonde like that for a while. And so, exactly. I, I get it. It's fine. I'm just exactly. always going to be a nudge. <laughs> what if they meet and then Emma bleaches her hair whiter? Because she's. That like, would I be don't great. Emma's like, like, I don't like. That right, and so suddenly they one of them changes their hair color just a little bit. I think that other one needs to get off my deck. Yeah, basically. Thank you so much, Shan. Like Can Smith. Thank you, Shan. Thank you, Shan. Al Pavlis writes, "Hi Connor, love you, the pod, Teeny, and especially Excalibur, flowers for all. Teeny, you've gotten me to fall in love with Betsy. I'll admit it, I'm an Academy X stan and rarely have an A-list fave X-man, but you did it. The character development is top tier. It really gave me everything I wanted from a book. I never really knew Betsy, and Excalibur gave me everything I needed to love her. Aside from Betsy, that Jubilee moment in Excalibur 9, where she says to tell Shogo not to look up and just goes off, amazing. Needless to say, I'm very excited for Knights of X. Other worlds become a realm I've really enjoyed learning about. The regions, the lore, it's giving. What can we expect coming up in Knights that you can share? Just a teaser. I'm personally excited for more Braddock family moments, if that gives you any ideas. And it wouldn't be me without my asking about Academy X. My question is, what do you think of Pixie and her possible connection to Otherworld? And do you have any thoughts on my favorite lilac armadillo knight, Indra? Thanks for listening and entertaining my standum, Al Pavlis. Okay, let me go through it. What kind of tease about nights? That's exciting. Well, it kind of ties into your other question about Pixie is that, you know, the nights, well, I don't want to spoil too much, but we know from the end of Excalibur that Betsy is stuck in there. Yeah. And we, you know, she hasn't been back. She's not walking around on Krakoa. She's, she's another world. She's stuck in there. We know from the solicits that she won't be alone in there, right? It's not right. a Captain Britain book. It's a team <laughs> book. So we know that she won't be alone in there. And that's something that I'm kind of excited to move toward in this book is, you know, we're going to open our other world up slowly, but the excitement is that some, you know, we want to be able to see, I mean, the question is there, obviously the question is, what would Wolverine do in other world, right? What would Pixie do? What would, can people pop in to other world for their D and D adventure? And I think the answer is, yeah, why not? Right. Well, yeah, like, (laughs) yeah, exactly. Like we'll have to, you know, you'll see, but, but I mean, that's that question of what would this character do? What would that character do? It's on my mind too. I know Pixie's mom is in other world somewhere. And that is a threat. It would be super fun. Pixie's mom. Has got it going on. Yeah, I can tease that. And yeah, the idea that, you know, it's totally on my mind too, that getting, seeing different characters in other world and and, uh, what they could do. And obviously, you know, if if we're there to help mutants, there are a lot of mutants that would have a dog in that fight. Absolutely. And then there was a third question, wasn't there? Oh, do you have any thoughts on the Academy X character Indra at all? I don't. 
Yeah. I don't, but I love lavender. <laughs> it's a great color, and you'll see a lot more of it in Knights of X because, yeah, you know, signature color for our heroine, one might say. That's right. That's right. Indra would match great. Lavender he would armor look is great. Yeah, with all those Betsy's, he would totally fit in. Kathleen Snook writes, hello, Connor and Teeny. Teeny, I'm such a huge fan of your work on Excalibur, and I cannot wait for KOX to see what happens next for Betsy and the gang. My question for both of you is brief. What would you say are the astrological signs of the Cox cast? Best wishes, Kathleen. So Betsy is canonically a Taurus. Yeah, she's canonically a Taurus, and she's very much a Taurus. I mean, yeah, yeah, about as much as you can be. Yeah. Is there anything more Taurian than being a beautiful supermodel who, like, literally plants your feet with a shield and fights people yeah, would rather fight people <laughs> like, with a sword than have a conversation yeah, yeah. it's very like, Torian. Like, bay the blood moon is a sagittarius that tracks very much in that she you know would has a lot of feelings but would rather do than talk for uh, a lot of reasons gambit's a gemini in my mind but i think that just says more about my experience with gemini men than anything else <laughs> that makes sense to me i think rachel is a libra Maybe. No, Rachel's a Capricorn. Megan is a Libra. Megan is a Libra. Megan's, Megan's a Virgo Libra cut. I was going to say, Megan it was is like, she's not, the thing about Megan is she's not calculating enough to be like a Virgo. Like Saturnine's a Virgo. Yeah, but like she's on the cusp. But she's you know, on the like, cusp. There's like, well, that's the thing about Megan. That's why she threatens Saturnine because she's a little bit cunning, you know? Like she, there's that yeah, exactly. to her. She also, here's the thing about Virgo. And I, I look, my Mars is in Virgo. I can say this. Um, like there's kind of that Virgo, like the Leo Virgo cusp at the start is kind of ice princessy. And then as you move towards Libra, Virgos get, go from like ice princess to earth mother. They kind of thaw. Mm-hmm. So like a Virgo Libra cusp to me is, you know, it's still an earth sign. She has her, her elemental powers. She's very, you know, nurturing and motherly. And those traits are in Virgo and those are earth sign traits. But then she's also a beautiful communicator who can control the wind because she can control elements. So, you know, Megan's a Virgo Libra cusp. Richter is a male Pisces. Game recognized game. That's just an unfortunate thing. Male Pisces with like a Taurus moon. Something that's fucking up the chart. But yeah, but like the, I'm going to be mystical and find meaning in something. And I'm so depressed. Like, <laughs> is there anything more Pisces than being sad over a big blue man? Like, no, no. <laughs> What's Apocalypse? I'm trying to think. Hear me out. I think he's like an Aquarius Pisces cusp. No, that, I could see Aquarius. I really could. He's an Aquarius Pisces cusp though, because like he's got like the man loves his wife too much to be a pure mm-hmm. Aquarius. Yeah, no, that's fair. That's absolutely fair. Shatterstar is an Aries. I'm still thinking about Rachel. Rachel's tough. Rachel's tough because I just feel like she's so principled as like. She's maybe a Scorpio Sagittarius cusp. I love a cusp. See, I'm very like cusp skeptical, but I love this cusp energy from you. Well, also Scorpios are, you know, I'm so sorry. I'm being like the most irritating bisexual woman going on and on with my white ass about (laughs) astrology. Well, but you are a Scorpio. <laughs> You're entitled to your Scorpio thoughts. Yeah. I think. Um, Scorpio is fire of water. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like it's I call the them fire of the water Pisces, sign. but mean is what I always yeah. say. Yeah, and like super insight and like a sense of like, but like a sense of con- control over that insight mm-hmm. is that's like the astrological version of Chronos skimming, right? Right. Yeah. But obviously, she's a direct fire sign. Also, like Sagittarius is kind of a 
like, I don't know, just a survive, I think. Yeah, but also I'm thinking about it. I'm like, Jean is, which this has always been weird to me. Jean is canonically a Pisces. And so I'm thinking about, I know, I feel like it's wrong, but she is. Madeline is, depending on how you look at it, either a Pisces because she's a clone of Jean, or I would argue a Virgo because we get the date that she activated and it's the night Jean died on the moon. So that's a different birthday to have, right? Aren't Pisces and Virgo opposites too? Literally six of these books near me probably have Zodiac wheels in them, but I don't Also, know. to be clear, like caveat for the listeners, we know that none of this is real. It's just really fun yeah. to talk about. Uh-huh. It's like neither the characters nor the astrology is real. We right. Are I'm now going back on Bay a little bit now that I'm thinking about it because like Sag was my instinct, but I think it's more the aesthetics that I'm thinking about. I feel like she might, and again, we don't know her that well yet, but like I could see her as a cancer. Yeah, actually. She's uh, like armored. She wants to build a home. She's like very sentimental secretly. Like she loves, like just wants to love and protect this like sweet man. Stay out of my crab lair. Yeah. I could see that. My mom is a cancer, by the way. No, no disrespect. No, I love cancer. My best friend's a cancer. Great sign of people who do not like to leave their house very much. Yeah, no, I, I actually really like Bay as a cancer. I feel that. I'll approve that. And then there's <laughs> other characters that you can't talk about yet. But what's Shogo's deal? I mean, he's a baby. They don't really have personalities yet. Yeah, Shogo doesn't have an astrology sign yet. He hasn't been. We'll get he there. Yeah. As, well, he, we don't as, know he, as he grows up, we'll get there. Yeah, or maybe he does. Like, I'm in my mind thinking of things that. I know about the character that I would want to assign, but I don't want to tell you guys that stuff yet. Like I want you Fair guys to, enough, get to know, yeah. Get to know those things about him through the story. Mm-hmm. I like that. And she's a character emerita, but I feel like Jubilee is a fire sign, but I'm not sure which one. Also, yeah. Also maybe an Aquarius. Well, that's a, you know, a lot of people where you're like, what are they? And then someone says, oh, she's an Aquarius. And I'm like, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. But I don't think about it until they say, my moon is an Aquarius, which is why my emotional processing is all fucked up. <laughs> also, I have mental illness, but, you know, right. like, yeah. explaining it away with my moon's an Aquarius is a more. It's more fun to just. Yeah, uh, no, of course, obviously. Make up. It's the make planets, up complete clearly. bullshit that's not my fault, you know. The moon is why I'm mad. <laughs> Well, and I mean, if the Badoon were to blow it up, I'd be in a lot of trouble because then I wouldn't know how to process anything emotionally. My cycle would be all out of whack. Well, that certainly would be. Yeah, I'm still waiting for Reckoning War Red. That's just a lot of superheroines really annoyed about their cycle right. getting completely <laughs> fucked up. Oh my God, that took me a second. That's They're good. Like, that's good. The title system's completely fucked up. And guess what? It's not just the oceans that are pissed about it. Maybe the Blood Moon's going to be on that team. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> I hope that answered your question, Kathleen. I was like, what about Brian? And I was like, wait, Brian is Bessie's twin. He's also canonically a tourist. Duh. Which, uh, which yes, also he, also he is. is. Yeah, well, that's, I, I mean, I imagine. He's a male Taurus and she's a female Taurus, like very much so. Yeah, and more gives him that birthday right before introducing Betsy. And then is like, here are twins who are Tauruses, like very specifically. Yeah. 
Shanita Peterson writes, hi, Connor and esteemed Miss Howard. Thank you both for taking the time out to serve the Zala gang the tea we want and need. I'm a big fan of your work in the X office, Teeny, and I'm on a one-woman crusade to push the gospel of Ten of Swords to the masses, the apocalypse and genesis of it all. I haven't felt that hard for a couple in years. Which brings me to my question, fandom ships. Obviously, the best X-Men stories are soap operas, and romance is a huge part of that equation. And you are the steward of characters now who are intrinsically tied to specific romantic partners. Selena, Betsy, Remy, Julio, and now Bay. How do you craft stories to move those characters forward while also giving fans of the ships moments to savor along the way? Sincerely, Shanita Peterson, Sweets P on the Discord. That is such a good question, Shanita. Thank you. I have been married to my best friend for 12 years. I, I just finally met him recently, which was a yeah. Our schedules have just like not linked up, but we had a- Yeah, like the two two of the men I see the most of in LA finally met and got on like a house on fire. It was great. Crossing paths. Yeah, I've been with him for like 15 years. So like, and in in those times, like I have changed and grown as a person hugely and always loved the same person, always loved him. You know, like I- I think part of how I can do that is because I, I don't know. I, I think sometimes, and I li- listen, I was a fan. I was a big fandom person when I was young, when I was, you know, still either before I'd begun dating or after I'd been dating and I was still just young and not in anything serious and had no concept of certain things. I think I would also feel like a lot more threatened by like moments where like my ships were like shaken up or where they were like not together or whatever. But as I've grown, like, those like it's so important to have those like moments where you are like I don't know how to say this because my partner is like my best friend and I see him every day but like where your parts of your life where your partner is not your primary focus where you know they're there for you but like sometimes they are you know I travel a lot for work sometimes and so does my husband and sometimes you know it's like you spend a, a week apart also it's like you know you don't like when I wrote Strike Force, a lot of people were like, wow, you put Wiccan in this book and not Hulkling. And I'm like, well, yeah, not everyone works at the same place as their spouse. Well, <laughs> like, and now with Rogue, with Rogue on the X-Men and Gambit continuing on Excalibur and now into Knights. And in Knights, I mean, they're going to be very cordoned off because Otherworld is it's like a no-go right now. It's closed off. They're going to be separated for a while, presumably. And that's an interesting thing to do. Who is Gambit in 2022? without Rogue there is something that not a lot of stories have told us in a recent way since they got back together and certainly since they got married. Right. And, you know, in some cases, you know, in some cases it's part of the story, right? Like when I inherited uh, Catwoman, you know, Bruce and Selena were on a break, right. are on a break. So, and that's something those characters have, you know, decided together. So it's like something that is different in the story than a situation like with Rogue and Gambit or with Wicked and Hawkling and Strike Force or, you know, Bay and Doug sometimes when it's Or like, even with Richter and Shatterstar where- Richter and Shatterstar. Where they were like, you, you can know. put them back together if you want. Like that was, there was no, yeah. it was, they had been broken up, but there was nothing preventing you from putting them back together or, you know. Yeah. And like, I view all of those relationships as really similar. Like, you know, I've I've had some people be like, think I like hate Bruce and Selena as a couple because of what I'm doing in Catwoman right now. And I'm like, no, I just like Bruce and Selena. Like I'm grown. I'm an adult. (laughs) Right. They're on again, off again. And I just took over this book 
as they've become off again. So she's single. That doesn't mean that I mean, you hate them as a couple. And on the contrary, it's like all of those couples I mentioned are couples I think are, are fascinating and amazing. But it's like, I also, in my life, I've seen, you know, other relationships. I've seen, you know, I've grown, I've consumed a lot of great stories about relationships. And like, I just think that like, overall, the stories where characters are, when you separate characters, you can force them to realize what they do love about each other. And yes. they can fall back in love and they can remember why they're in love and being apart. And it's so romantic, right? To be apart from the person you love and pine for them. Or if you're not pining for them and you're apart from them and you're trying to convince yourself that you're strong enough and you don't need them or whatever, it's just so juicy story-wise to separate two characters who do have a deep connection. So in my mind, separating characters that are in love is not about breaking them up it's about telling the story of why they should be together like why yeah. they care like the version of this i joked about with you the other day connor is like when i broke up betsy and her butterfly <laughs> yes and you were like i knew that when they got back together the fans were gonna love it right and it's like that thing where i just have to, i mean there's a reason i called the first book of strike force trust me and it's because that's all i want as a storyteller is for you guys to be like this might hurt now, but it's a roller coaster. And when I realize that it's, you know, when I get off of the ups and downs, I'll catch my breath and realize how fun that was because I was never in any real danger. It was just a story. It's going to be okay. This yeah. is just part of the story and we're going to get through it. And that's so important to me is like being strong enough as a writer. And this is part of why I avoid fan interaction sometimes is not because I don't want to hear the nice things or the not so nice things. Like you guys are welcome <laughs> to say all the not so nice things you want. I just have to remove myself from the conversation because I know that I have a plan right. and I don't want to deviate from my plan because I know how satisfying it's going to be when people get what you were doing. When people are like, yeah. I see that I, I will say, I mean, I don't send you, I know that you like don't like to read reviews and I don't <laughs> communicate to you things I see because it's like, again, if you're not going to look for them, I'm not going to tell you what they are. Yeah. Sometimes I'll just be like, great reviews on this week's issue. And you're like, great, cool. But yeah. know, generally speaking, I'm like, let's not go into detail. But I have seen specifically this month because Excalibur 26 just went up on Marvel Unlimited. A lot of people who had fallen off somewhere along the way who are like, I just read Excalibur. And the people are tagging me. They're like, I just read Excalibur beginning to end. This is such a good book. And like, I'm really happy that I read it straight through or whatever. And obviously like monthly comics is tricky. And especially in COVID when like there were skip months. And I mean, you had that really annoying delay oh, it when it was worst. like you did that like fake Captain's Britain cliffhanger. And then it was like months went by before the next issue. <laughs> like oh my gosh. It, they and paused so, you at like the worst moment. It was the worst because <laughs> I, like when I did this issue, like literally that was my most like, like St. Grant look over me while I do this very weird comic This one thing. weird like bottle <laughs> episode. And then it was like, where is Excalibur's plot going for the next six months? You're like, guys, that was a bottle episode. It's like not that, right? like I'm getting into the next arc, but we can't yeah, do it, it was until three months from now. It was just me getting the chance because I, I was getting to write an ongoing for the first time like that, where I could do things where I was like, you know, it really, what I was doing was my version of in Grant's Batman, when they introduced that, like, you know, that like uh, society of like gentlemen that are like the yeah. other Batman, mm -hmm. Batsmen, Captain's Britain, whatever, from all, from all over. And then like, it's just like a weird two episode or two issue like bottle. 
And then those characters show up like way later in an unrelated right. way. But it's like not, yeah. But it was an excuse to tell a fun story. And I was like, yeah, I want to write a story where there's like a burning effigy of Jean Grey in the middle of London. Like I right. want, I want to fake people out with the idea that Krakoa, like what, what would Krakoa it has like? fallen, et cetera. And then it's, right. And then at the end of the issue, you could be like, that was a Jamie Braddock pocket dimension and everything's fine. And we move on. Yeah, and really the relevant thing are these rogue captains Britain, which are going to become an issue down the line, and they're going to affect Betsy's credibility, and they're going to be a, a mark against her. And it really is just a way for me to write a bottle episode that is fun and matters more than just saying, oh, and like, I need to, if I want to have the other, if I want the cool shot of all the other characters as Captain Britain, I have to justify it in the story. Yeah, so it was just like my way of stretching my legs and doing that. And I was like, it's okay. They'll be freaked out for a month. And it was like, no, they were freaked out for four months. <laughs> exactly. They were freaked out for like five months because the, the printing was all shut down. And it was like, and was, where is this plot going? You're like, guys, nowhere in particular. It's not going. Like this this reality is over. It's fine. Yes. Like, we, we're not <laughs> but I couldn't say that. No, of course you can't say that. But it was just. So instead I just wrote. Ten of Swords, put my head down and wrote Ten of Swords. For your first real ongoing, because Strike Force was it was long, but it was a limited series. Yeah, it also ended up impacted by COVID. Yeah, as well. it was yeah. impacted by COVID. The last issue was cut, but I got to do like I got to write. That was because of timing with Empire, right? It was like and, well, there and wasn't... things moved because the, yeah, of COVID. Because yeah, well, because things got delayed and moved up or back, and then it was like. Exactly. Wiccan can't be here because Empire is happening, basically. Right. Like, like the <laughs> issue I had written no longer would have applied. Right. Because of the way things moved. Because it, it 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 was a tie-in, so it had not been drawn. And so, yeah. I remember when you were like, well, the logistical things are fucked. Yeah. There's a pandemic on, and you know what? What can you do? But it was great because uh, Will and Sarah, who are my Strike Force editors, issue 10, the one that had gotten cut, was very much like a, a Wiccan-centric issue mm -hmm. because it was about, it was a tie into Empire, so it was very right. much about him and, and Teddy. So I got, what the, the cool thing about that was that Sarah and Will, because of you know, that issue getting cut, asked me to write the honeymoon, the honeymoon special for King and Black, which was cool. And you got to convey like your thoughts about their relationship that you wanted to convey some and, of yeah. them anyway, like not all of them, but you you got to play with it the way that you wanted to and the issue that you didn't get to do. Yeah, and in kind of a fun way too, because, pre, you know, the issue I'd written had been kind of this like melancholy thing. Like, right, like, like, oh, we're apart right now and you got to write the part where we're married and thrilled about it. So yeah, was, and the, the real get of the issue I had written was that it was, the idea was that it was going to be read before, it was written with the knowledge that Billy is talking about the fact that they're married, but it had not yet been mm -hmm. revealed to the audience yet that they were married. So the intent was like the issue would read very differently after we find out that they were married during the event. And this was just a fun romp because we knew. Yeah. You got to relax more with it. Yeah. It was fun. I remember you texted me with like a Judaism fact check real quick at one point <laughs> when you were scripting that. I was just like, I was like, Yep, sounds good. Like I didn't know the context. I didn't know any details. Yeah. Like, yep. I was just yeah. I, I was, was like just double checking. Like thank you. Appreciate the thought. <laughs> <laughs> That's me texting lots of people when I'm like doing something for Cerebro where it's like a touchy issue. I have thankfully lots of friends with lots of different experiences. I'm just like if I bring up this thing that someone wrote in, like someone's like maybe phrase it like X Y Z. Like sometimes it's just nice to ask people what's what i think being a good writer creator artist of any kind comes with a healthy dose of like humility toward the world mm -hmm. when you say like i am 
like I am but one voice and I humble you know, I have to humble myself. And if I'm writing about people that aren't me, that often involves, you know, happily humbling myself in the form of admitting my ignorance and reaching out. Yeah, no, absolutely. It just, I just remember that was funny. I was like, oh, that's the first note I've ever been asked to give on a a professional comic. Spencer Ackerman writes. (gasps) Hi, Spencer. Dear Teeny, I regret that I am trying to stop my one-year-old from emptying a bookcase and cannot research this, but I believe it was your penultimate Excalibur issue where you wrote one of the defining lines of the Krakoa era, one for the Pantheon beside, I want my wife back. I don't know what to tell you, Marvel girl. Try harder. Colossus is a big everything, and Gambit gonna ride that big boy like a (laughs) four-wheeler. Megan taking a beat while they're planning the defense of the Starlight Citadel to tell Maggie, don't spill juice. This immortal line resonated with every parent in the X fandom. You reflected our daily struggle and created an other world outside our window. My question has two parts. One, what was your process for writing such a moment of sublime perfection? And did you have to fight to keep it in the book, given how much story you tell in those 20 short pages? Spencer Ackerman, Brooklyn, New York. Spencer, you big brain. I also agree. Those are all like my favorite lines. Those are great lines. Try Harder Marvel Girl was my Twitter bio for like two years. Yeah, because it's, yes, it's essential. And I was exclusive to Marvel at the time. So it was very much like my mantra. I was like- To yourself, try try harder Marvel Girl. Yeah, I I swear (laughs) to God, I've gotten notes from Jonathan that were other words, but spiritually were try harder Marvel Girl. (laughs) I think that like Jonathan, there are so many things that Jonathan did in his time on the X-Men, but one of the things that I really do think he did was- if you've never heard of Monet and you see that panel and then the panel of her turning into penance in House of X, you're just like, I get it. I get this character. I get her whole deal immediately. Also her standing uh, <laughs> during... Uh, during creation of being like, yeah. I, like about Saturday and being like, looks like a job I might want someday. Yep. And like, just standing there people like... People still even... Like, do you think anyone will... Do you think Monet will replace... I'm like, I think it was a joke, but it characterized Monet so well that you're now wondering if it will be a plot, which... Sometimes I wonder that it's one of those things that like it'll be like a throwaway joke, but in like 30 years from now yeah. it will happen. Yeah. If you're listening and your dream is to write for Marvel Comics, like please do that someday. Sure, why not? <laughs> please turn my throwaway joke into an amazing into story. Monet as Omniversal Magistrix. Literally, yeah. why not? If you're listening in 2050 and that has happened in Marvel Comics, please feel free to email cerebrocast at gmail.com on the hollow net or whatever. Uh, Let us know have. in the comments. Let us know if we're still kicking, please, hopefully. Fingers crossed. Please your Amazon thought device. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Use your Amazon brain implant to tell us exactly what you're thinking. So, uh, how, oh, to answer, yes, yeah. to answer Spencer's question. I'm so glad that you appreciate that scene Spencer because I love I love that scene so much I do not remember how or why I got the idea but I love writing Maggie Braddock I think she's a character that like I have to deploy carefully because too much of her would be like cloying but she's I have personally and you know I hate children in comics (laughs) I'm very on record with this I love that character because she can be a real character she's like a person with she's a child who's like got a child's mentality in certain ways but she can have a mature conversation because her brain is running so fast at the same time the fact that she made saturnine be like my favorite thing about her little like war room battle display with her dolls and her action figures is that there are beautiful dolls in white dresses on the board 
but, but she has forced Saturnine to be a Spider-Man action figure because she doesn't want her to be a pretty lady. And I no, really think that's she's like, she doesn't like my mom, so she no, can yeah. be Spider-Man. Like that is really funny she's, to yeah, me. Yeah, she's an ugly boy. Um, <laughs> yeah, but I mean like, okay, so Maggie is, you know, she's brilliant, but she's very much a toddler. And so I like writing her because I never forget that she has the life experience of a toddler. This is totally fucked up and not an endorsement of the show in any way, but there's like, there's like a little bit of like Stewie from Family Guy. Sure, right, right, yeah. Where it's like, like where he's like, you know, like brilliant and then like mommy picks him up and he's like, unhand me, oh, but I do want snuggles. Like, right, you know? yeah, exactly. Like I well, am she's still- like, I don't like you toddler. speaking about me, mommy. And it's like very, you know. Yeah, I'm here. I can hear you. Yeah, right. like, and, and everyone can, you know. But, but she like, also like needs a nap. Yes, like she is very much a toddler, you know? So I don't remember why I got that idea. I remember it was something that I like, message to the slack because I wasn't sure if it was too stupid but I was like what if there's like a splash page and it's Maggie doing like a war room with like her toys and we were like that's so funny and so like when I scripted it like there were really specific things like one of them was like the siege towers should be like stacks of crackers Mm -hmm. like stacks of really great crackers and the and there should be juice like the the, like the citadel has to be a glass of juice so she could be like and it's fallen and like to me it was just kind of like a funny when I saw it in my head it was really funny that Maggie was very serious and that it's like when you see it at first, it's like, oh, that's sweet. But yeah, okay, she really is taking this seriously. And then she takes it too seriously. And it's just like, and it will fall. And like, Megan is not here for the drama. Megan is just mom who has to clean up the chair. And that's the other thing is it's a nice characterizing beat too, because Maggie is like going on and on like Patton. And Mm -hmm. and, and Megan is like, Maggie, don't spill juice. Four words, yeah. right? Like very economical use of a simple vocabulary. Like Megan is not a flowery language kind mm-hmm. of person. She's sort of rough and tumble, you know. She learned, right. how, learned how to speak from EastEnders or whatever. Like watching, <laughs> yeah, watching right, the telly TV. in the truck. So it's just like very funny to me. Like, Maggie, no! While Maggie's speaking like, well, mother, I'm going to go down to the war room and yeah. And some engagements with the vanguard, you know, like it's right. very funny to me that divide between them also, because we know that's something Megan's insecure about, but she seems much more secure in herself than she's been probably since the nineties. I mean, since her marriage to Brian, because I feel like ever since they got married, it's been sort of a parade of like wacky things for, I mean, when she became Gloriana in the MI13 annual, yeah. that's the other big triumphant moment for her, but I love her position now and I'm very excited by Bob's teaser of what I assume must be art from three of her just like really, cause he's doing pencils right now. Yeah. He's doing a lot of beautiful Megan's and I don't know. I just, I'm a sucker for like, like <laughs> there's a moment we all really liked in the the first issue that Megan is just, Brian is perfectly capable of watching their daughter while yeah. she goes on an adventure. Brian can be dad. I'm busy. It's fine. It's okay. Yeah. And, and that she likes that and that she's allowed to have fun and that it doesn't make her a bad mom. And like, I don't know, it's important to me to have like moms that are going on adventures and they're not bad moms about it. But anyway. Well, I like also the juxtaposition of that with Rogue deciding she doesn't really want to be a mom, or at least she feels that way right now. And the conversation that she and Gambit had in Excalibur, because then it's like, okay, you have this married couple that's childless and they're being superheroes, but also it's okay to be a mother and still be a superhero. Fathers do it all the time. We just don't expect it with female characters. I mean, that's why I actually, not to take it to a place of Julia Carpenter, but that's why I always loved the 
second Spider-Woman, Julia Carpenter, who's Madam Web now. I guess that's who Dakota Johnson is going to play in that Sony movie. Who knows? But I can't imagine. I, I can't, can't imagine they're going to have Dakota Johnson play like an 85-year-old woman. That seems unlikely. No. Right? But she was like a single mom with like a 10-year-old. And it felt very high stakes because it's like if your single mom dies in a superhero battle, what becomes of you? Like in a way that at the same time, we never asked that of like male characters right just assume like well someone will hand some woman will handle the child because that's right well and i mean i for a person who doesn't have kids i write a lot about moms Mm -hmm. and i have a great relationship with my mom i wouldn't say that like i have mommy issues i'm working out on the page i just like as a woman as a cis woman at least it's something that you are that confronts people are constantly putting that expectation on you yeah i mean people don't realize how like you know if you're a um married woman in your late twenties and you don't have kids and you're trying to get jobs, like that is something that has a, that can affect, that can be against you, that employers right, because are she's going to want to get pregnant soon, yada, yada. And even if you don't, or you say you have no intent to, it's they're like, nervous well, about it. She will, you know, um, and they're not so going like, to say it because that's illegal, but they're going to think, right. That. But we don't want to advance her because if she has to leave for two years, then we'll just stick someone else in her, you know, like it's, there's a lot of insidious stuff about being a person who can have children in the culture in which we live. So I have a lot to say about like moms and and kids. And really what that is for me is it's less about having mommy issues or whatever, and more just about me wanting to display a diversity of the way women handle one of the most important experiences that humans go through. And that's just like a tribute to all of the mothers I've known and all of the mothers I'm friends with and all of the like my own mother and my own thoughts on being a mother and my own nurturing experiences that have not been motherhood and my own fears about, you know, and the, there's a slight, you know, a lot, there's just a lot that goes into making that decision or not making that decision or what. And I don't think that anyone, I, I think that all of those choices are fascinating and interesting. And I think that when we talk about things like women having children, we often think about it in the terms of people having babies in that mm-hmm. and not about the various ways to raise children, to raise teenagers, to raise adults, to raise people, to raise humans, to nurture them, to be tied to them, to, I mean, I'm a huge fan of the horror genre because I feel like it's a genre that just is like effortlessly and for a long time explore a lot of things that are unique to navigating the world as a woman. Yeah. And particularly like the experience of being a wife or a mother the 20th yeah. century is like Rosemary. I mean, Ira Levin, Rosemary's Baby, The Stepford Wives. Like those are sort of both about that anxiety. The Duke. Yeah. You know, The um, Exorcist um, is really. Hereditary. Right. That's the thing. It's like my child, something is wrong with my child. And I am a woman trying to navigate a system that doesn't take me seriously. Mm-hmm. And that will indict me as a bad mother when actually my child is possessed by the devil. Like that's. Exactly. A, like, you know. Exactly. Exactly. Horror, I feel like, is a genre that really furiously does that. The Omen does that, too. Yeah. You know? Uh, Child's Play, honestly. Oh, yeah. Child's Play is a better movie than I remembered. I rewatched it, like, two Halloweens ago. And I was just like, oh, it's I'm not really scared of Chucky. It's not one of my favorites. And then I rewatched it and was like, oh, that movie's not about Chucky. It's about this mom. That movie's really Mm -hmm. good. So, yeah, I'm really inspired by that. And I guess that's something that, you know, I guess... There are certain comics fans who don't want those kinds of messages or find those kinds of messages preachy or boring or whatever. But to me, they're really important and there's something that inspires me. And if I'm here, I'm going to tell stories that inspire me and not 
what I think people want to read, frankly. And you know what? People do seem to want to read this. Yeah. And if you write what you think other people want to read, you're not going to write good stuff. That's sort of no. philosophy. You have to write what you want to write. That's really the bottom line. I think it's so important when you work in any genre or in any medium to take influences from outside of it. Like if you want to write comics, sure, you have to read comics, but you also have to like go to art museums, watch Mm -hmm. movies that are confusing to you so you can learn, you know, watch movies that aren't in a language you understand so you can understand visual storytelling. Yeah. You know, like go, go to art museums, go to concerts, watch performance art, get books from the library, you know, like get pull all these things from outside because your interests are what make you, you know, mm-hmm. I got way off track. Thanks for the question. That's okay. Spencer. Great question. <laughs> no, but also the other bit of it that I thought was interesting was like, he was kidding, but like, did you have to fight to keep that on page? Not at all. But what is that like? Cause people I think who don't write comics don't understand how economical you have to be with page space. You do. It's not like prose. I mean, if you've only got four or five panels on a page or six, you know, like you have to really decide what is going to happen in, in, in a very tight way. Yeah. The word I use is real estate. And, and much like real estate, you know, it's not all space is not the same. And, you know, you have certain other things you, like, you know, you have an artist drawing this, right? So you, if you're like, well, I can just tell my story if I do 20 panels per page, it's like, well, then you better be drawing it because you better not force anyone yeah, else to do that. No. And you, you want to give the artist a chance to do what they do because this is their book too, right? So like you have to give the artist space to do some beautiful work that really, if you're a smart writer, helps you and carries you along Absolutely. and bolsters you. But yeah, real estate is a huge issue. And it's part of why, like when I was a young fan writing fan fiction for comic books that I was reading at the time I think I I would read other people's fan fiction too and it was things like yeah you know it's that scene where they would just be sitting and eating cereal after the battle and that's great like I think that it's so amazing that like a fan culture exists to plumb those things because we don't always have the space to do you can't do a talking head for three pages of a comic like you just can't do that and the thing that I think is great about people for example you know writing fan fiction about missing scenes and stuff is like like I'm so glad that you think that way you know even if it's not the characters are alive to you and that's exciting like that means the work is good you know like I can't read it but and I'm sure there are a hundred of you doing a hundred different things the x-men and I think that's so freaking cool at this point I can't like I made it a policy in the discord I was like I work with too many pros at marvel and like who knows where my life will go like I just you can't no fan fiction in the discord because yeah it's important to well legally it's important to not read that stuff but also it's just like it's good to not take on too much of other people's stuff. At the same time, it's so heartening that anything that you write is something that would inspire other people to be creative. I mean, that's cool. Yeah, I mean, and I'll confess, I think it's maybe not deliberate, but my I've always been very inspired by works that I feel like left a lot of interesting things off the page for fans to fill in themselves yeah like some writers do it so that you know as a writer and I often do that myself because I'm writing sequential and I'm I'm writing episodic sequential work that has a month between releases Mm -hmm. so I want you to spend the next month thinking about what's going on there's going to be time to fill in exactly because you guys don't get the next chapter until next month so if you know if you're reading my work and you're like oh my gosh why isn't there the scene of you know, Richter and Shatterstar's first date after the Hellfire Gala when they get back together, like, like, because I didn't 
have room for it, but absolutely right. that date happened. Like, I want you to think about it. I want you to sit and daydream about it or go write fanfic or fan art or whatever. Like, love it. It's yours now. It's out of my hands. Please enjoy. <laughs> I remember you mentioning to me that one thing was like the stuff with malice was really tight in terms of real estate. And so it occurred to you, you were like, I wrote a scene where Betsy asks Polaris, like, is it okay if we give this girl another chance? And then you were like, I just don't have a page to do that, unfortunately. But I think people will assume that they would ask Lorna before like making malice related decisions. That's the kind of scene that's a fanfic scene. It's Betsy and Lorna having a convo about like Lorna's trauma. Yeah. You can't necessarily fit it into 20 pages when you're doing an action story and a mystery and a this and a that. Yep. Right. And it's, you know, something that might come up on the page if the characters are together again or right. might not. But yeah, it's totally like there. Sometimes you write whole scenes where you're just like, this has got to, I don't, I need to do other things with this. Like, frankly, what happened in that issue when I wrote that scene was I was sacrificing Malice's actual character in exchange for people talking about Malice, which is not what right, I wanted to do. Right, which is not what you wanted issue. to do. So that's obviously what you cut. It's just, that's an example of like, that's a scene that I, as a fan who loves Betsy and Lorna and like loves the 80s material would have been obsessed with. Yeah. But- if I was your editor, that would also be the first page where I was like, well, you can cut this, you know, yeah. like, that, like, because you have to be economical with the, with the real estate. Yeah, I almost never have to fight to keep things in, but I'm pretty good at taking notes. And it's not because I'm like insecure. And if someone gives me a note, I think I have to bow to it. But what I want is the reading experience of whatever I've written to be as question free and smooth as possible. So if I get a note, what that tells me is you're bumping on something. There's at this point, you were pulled out of the story because you had a question. So no matter what, whether or not I agree with the note, I've got to change it there. Even if you don't solve it the way that the note would suggest something, there's a speed bump here that we need to sand over. That makes a lot yeah. of sense to me. So I don't usually have to fight for a lot of things because if I'm fighting, it means that the script's not there yet. Like I, I don't want to fight my editor and convince my editor. I want to convince my editor as a reader with the work. So I'm more likely to just hand in a new draft and be like, oh, this is great. And there you go. Yeah. You know? Or, or message, you know, my editor and be like, what if I do this? Does that work instead? Yeah. James McNeil writes, hello, Connor and Teeny. Obligatory note that I'm a huge fan of the pod. It got me back into reading comics after nearly a decade. And I love how much I'm learning while also having a lot of what I love about the X title spotlighted. I've become a huge Teeny Howard fan after her run on Excalibur. On that note, I was utterly delighted when my favorite character, Richter, joined the new iteration of my favorite team, Excalibur. I found his interactions with Apocalypse unexpectedly compelling. And though we got some great moments with them in the book, I was wondering if you could talk some more, Teeny, about the decision to include Julio on the team and how he went from useful component for a ritual to Apocalypse's apprentice in magic. By Ten of Swords, they seem to genuinely care for each other, which was fascinating. Anyway, thank you both so much for what you do. I'm looking forward to what the future holds for both Cerebro and Knights of X. Stay fabulous, James McNeil. My understanding is just that you fucking love that character. <laughs> like, I do. <laughs> I, I fucking love Richter. He is one of my favorite characters. I'm also a, a sad, queer, recovering Catholic with mental illness. I imprinted on him like a baby duck when I yeah. first read him. The first time I read him was in X-Factor Investigation. Right. And I, that issue, the first issue, the way he's introduced, which was just like... With the suicide attempt. I mean, yes. that's really, it's memorable for sure. Right. I was like, who are you? Also and quite that, the introduction like, to Monet, actually. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Like I, and I, Because no, she saves no him. Surprise from, that I, yeah. Exactly. No surprise that I fell hard for both those characters. And Madrox, frankly. Um, he's a, just, of I course, love it. Yeah. 
I love him. He's, I, I don't know. He's, I know. I, I, I will say I love your Madrox. That's what I'll say. I enjoyed him very much in Export. <laughs> I do really love him. We actually, we haven't spoken since Celine made her Export debut. And I just have to tell you that I do think part of the Selenaissance that is ongoing that I feel somewhat responsible for is all on you, baby, because so many people were posting those panels. They thought it was the agriculture joke was a big hit on the Twitter. Thank machine. you. That, that was- one was... <laughs> I'm so glad people liked it because it was one of those lines where I was like, is this just me staring directly at the reader and talking? Right. Well, it was, but also that's what (laughs) Celine always has done. Even in the 80s, she like turns, she's like, since time immemorial, it has been me, Celine. Like she's always doing that. And I I spent an enormous amount of the pandemic reading like ancient prehistory, like a lot of studies. Like I started with stuff like, like I started with like sapiens and all those things that everyone read. And then I just kept digging and digging because I don't know, I don't like some of the claims in sapiens. Anyway. But there's like better history to be read. And so like I like read and just started, got really engaged in like prehistory. And maybe it was because I was afraid the world was going to end. And I was like, yeah, we'll right. go what, back to what happens in the Stone Age? Right. Yeah. And then to have a character where it's like, well, she was there. What are her thoughts on that? Like, that's fun. Exactly. <laughs> and, and Yeah. And so just I don't know. I love prehistory and I love thinking about Celine as someone who's existed. I, I love writing about immortals. Um, yeah, no, really. exactly. Well, I mean, that's like, she's a Vampire the Masquerade character, except she's yeah. older than any because she's like an antediluvian. You would never get to write that character. Yeah, she predates God. Like, yeah, like, <laughs> that's, we get into that in the episode. There's a bit of uh, a, a tangent on the wife of Lot. Because I think that Celine, oh. I think Celine dared her, like, just a fact. We were talking about that at Well, lunch. we talked about that at lunch. I told you about that, yeah. It's like salt. I am proud of that bit. I am. So anyway, about, about uh, Richter, yeah, I love him a lot. And I have always been thinking of a way to elevate him, like, since I started writing for Marvel. It's mm-hmm. like he's one of those characters I've always wanted to write for. And I've always been thinking of, like, a way to elevate him. And because he's got Earth powers, I've always just thought, like, he would be a cool, like, druid-type figure. Like, it would look cool. And also, there's a long tradition. And, look, whether it's real or not in the real world, in the Marvel Universe, we can explore these metaphors literally. Sure, yeah. Of a sort of sadness or emotional inner turmoil with magic. You know, the wise women and men are not always the most happy Happy. and sane. And there was something to me about like empowering to me about, I don't know, I've heard a lot of times in my life, like from, you know, even from therapists, you know, like, yes, you might be very (laughs) mentally ill, but you are also very creative. (laughs) Uh, And it's like, well, what's Richter's magic power? And it's like, well, earth stuff but like what's a version of it that he can devote himself to and I didn't want it to be like oh he just becomes more powerful he becomes more unstable and that's it to me like that was the version of the story that was boring so I just skipped right past it by having him be like I'm emotionally troubled and unable to control my powers and so I just buried myself in a coffin like I'm dead Mm -hmm. because I am it seems like a way that it, you know, neutralizes my powers and I'm too scared to hurt anyone. If I go to, like, there was a real strong metaphor for me in being a person who struggles with mental illness, the sense of, if I go to the place where everyone is happy, I will ruin it. And that was Richter's fear with Krakoa was like, if I am too upset to control my powers and I go there, I'll break it in half and I'll ruin it. And when I thought of that story, I was like, that story, and it's kind of like with Rogue having her nightmare. I was like, that story is so obvious to, about not having children. Right. Um, that story is so obvious to me that it's more interesting to have it just be a fear 
that the character is afraid of that happening. And so we can skip to, yes, we know. The resolution of like, we understand that. And how are you going to grow from this fear? Exactly. So it just seemed like it, you know, it's a thing that has been on an X-Men a hundred thousand times. My emotions are whack. So my powers are whack. We yeah. And like, am I, am again. I becoming a dark druid, like a dark phoenix? Yeah. Is that happening to me? Is it dark Richter saga? Yeah. And yeah, Richter clearly just thinks that's what's going to happen. So he takes himself away from his own joy and isolates himself out of that fear. That's actually what I love about Jerry's Lorna as a side. Like, I, it feels to me, I've talked to Jerry about this, but it feels to me like her mental illness is like a really intrinsic part of the character that's not cartoony. It's just considered like her spotlight issue, I feel like shows you like a manic depressive swing over the course the day of the bad issue. Day. And it's really strong. Yeah. I love when that stuff is thoughtful, you know? Yeah, no, for sure. Jerry's always incredibly. I mean, Jerry's like yeah. a great guy. And I totally, and, and for, so yeah, for me, it was really personal. And, you know, Apocalypse knew, knew what his plan was going to be, knew that he was like going to go away and that there was a part of his life that had been kind of secret and that he was like, you know, it's kind of the idea of Apocalypse being like, you know, I do still need to go do my thing and I am going to, I might, you know, I might die or whatever. He didn't know what would happen but he knew he might things might change mm-hmm. and it's like there's a part of his legacy that he was actually proud of that he wasn't right. you know there was that this magic and this the externals annoy him and he wants them gone but all of this work that i apocalypse did i care about and i want it to be important to my people even if i'm gone Yes. Right? And it's like, this is the man who is both useful to me and the apocalypse, you know, th- they are powerful and useful to me sense, but also like apocalypse is a father and he would hate to see a mutant so powerful and with such potential keep himself away from the family of Krakoa out of fear of his power, you know, out of a fear of his power. Like, so to me, apocalypse, just ripping the lid off that coffin and being like, come with me. The way that that's staged the way it is, is because at my, at my lowest, that's what I've wanted Mm -hmm. is someone to say, and in times in my life, I've had that and been grateful enough for it is to have someone big and strong rip the lid off the coffin you put yourself in and say, hand you like, get the fuck out of there. They're big, strong hand. We've got stuff you got to do. Come on. Yeah, I'm here. going to pull you up and like care for you and love you and train you and teach you because this is not what you are. This is just something you're you're feeling and, and it's part of you. And you don't need to get rid of it. You just need to cope, learn to cope and learn to be who you are. So it's a, it was a very important story. I found it very romantic. I mean, it's mm-hmm. part of what sure. has endeared me to Richter, a character I've never been like that. I've always liked him, but I've never been like super attached. But watching him find something that helped him get out of all of that and also watching him develop feelings for this man in my opinion that then you have to watch that man leave with his wife it's very mm-hmm. i'm not the girl yeah home. extreme robin you know, vibes like that vibe and i relate that's a very gay experience that i relate to yeah i was really happy to have that too like yeah like that i thought i mean deliberately i thought was an important part of the story it is not meant to be sly at all or i think it's pretty overt on the page that it's that's very certainly, overt. certainly that's where richter's coming from yeah, Richter is, is yeah, I mean, I, I all say that, you know, I don't think Apocalypse is, you know, freaked out by gay affection. I just think he had his wife on his mind and was, sure. you know, not thinking of having feelings for Richter, but Richter is not, 
it's not meant to be sly at all. Richter is deeply like infatuated, heart eyes, yeah, infatuated yeah. with this beautiful, strong man who is teaching him and loving him. Like, absolutely. In the Exodus episode, Tony Oliveira and I were talking about how he has this pattern apocalypse of like choosing these gay men to be like his heralds. So you have like, or like, you know, let's say these effeminate men in some cases, like dramatic men, Mr. Sinister in the Victorian period, Exodus all the way back in the Renaissance. And Richter is very of a piece with like man with a crisis of masculine anxiety who's really depressed like and just wants to find someone to be a teacher to them so that they can know understand more of the world like that is the kind of man even warren who is less mystical in his thinking let's say god love him was the kind of person who was searching for for meaning in his life because he was given everything right yeah i I mean i more or less reference that deliberately when i believe it's Betsy or maybe it's Rose. I believe it's Betsy goes to see, it's Betsy goes to see Apocalypse early on in Excalibur and Exodus is there and like Exodus is there and like been. They have some kind of relationship where they're still talking to each other. Yeah. And maybe Richter and Apocalypse will years from now be still great friends whenever Apocalypse returns from Ammon. But yeah, it's very much meant to be that like, you know, I think Exodus was an apprentice of his in a, a, after a fashion once upon a time, you know, and so it, it was definitely meant to be like, to set up the idea that like apocalypse um, does this he teaches does these this. people yeah i mean he's not he's you know been a villain for much of his history but it's out of a misplaced or not misplaced depending on how you look at depending it depending on how you look well his methods certainly are yeah questionable <laughs> but yeah apocalyptic one might say but he has the thing that i find interesting about him and Celine both is that their motivations are very clear like he has a very specific in his mind, altruistic motivation. She has a very specific narcissistic motivation. And I find them both interesting on that level as the two that have managed to survive this long in a Mm -hmm. world that hates and fears them, right? Like, what does it mean that these two are like the cockroaches you just cannot get rid of because they've become super mega ultra cockroaches And I also think it's really interesting to look at them in the context of like, if Apocalypse is this, is a slightly younger version of Celine. She'd say I'm much older. I'm 12,000 like, years older. Exactly. Than him. He's like, like, he's like, like, shut up. You're so annoying. right. Like in that sense where it's like, yeah, you <laughs> in the way that like patriarchy thinks it's older than it is. Right. Yeah, like, but he's like, okay, great. You spent 4,000 years in a cave eating people. That's like not experience that's useful in the modern <laughs> era. So I don't think that counts. Like, right. But it is like very much that, you know, I, I like writing her as coming from the, the ultra, um, like the ultra feminine, like the, oh, absolutely, like the the, the, the Venus of Willendorf kind of shit, like cultures yeah, and stuff that we yeah like, we don't let you guys count the spoils is all that right. needs to be said. Like exactly, like it doesn't go full like Maria Gambudis because that's like not actually real. But like no, what I like about your stuff is that it always feels very historically researched. That's just because I'm a nerd. But that's what I'm saying. But sometimes when people do like history or prehistory in particular, it's all very speculative. And I like when it's grounded in the the more up-to-date research and stuff like that. I'm also someone that's always reading like something, either fiction about something I find interesting or like nonfiction. Mm -hmm. So like, and even if I'm like, if I'm reading a fiction book and they mention something, you know, real in it, I'll often go like, look it up and get a nonfiction book about that. Like, so I'm just a nerd who's always like researching stuff that is not really relevant to my life because I have an obsessive nature. Yeah, no, I get that. (laughs) And so often I'm 
the things I'm putting in my writing are just whatever I'm interested in because I'm like, well, I've spent eight months accruing knowledge about prehistory. Time to put some time to books. put a cave woman in this book. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Allie Marshall writes, dear Connor and teeny whilst I'm incredibly happy for Rachel Betsy and Connor in seeing the Rachel Betsy relationship developing. I've been thoroughly obsessed with the Betsy Saturnine dynamic and the scenario unfolding from 10 of swords, along with the conceptual hilarity of playing with classic fantasy and destined romance tropes with those two. Could you please talk a little bit about the relationship between Betsy and Saturnine as it stands heading into Knights of X? How do you think Saturnine is currently processing the idea and meaning of Betsy as her heart's true protector? What does she perceive of the Rachel and Betsy connection? And if you can't divulge anything there, please, can you give us a general descriptor? How slow of a slow burn are we looking at here? If we're truly waiting for one of those girls to ask for what she wants, we will be here for a while. As a personal aside, a genuine thank you to both of you for helping keep me occupied and entertained through a mentally trying time. I no longer know who I was before the sudden onset of my investment in the likes of the ladies' mastermind. All the best. The non-coked-out alley, rebel by design in the Discord sometimes. Thank you for writing in, Allie. I don't know how much of that you can answer, Teeny, but I thought that was a very funny question. No, I love all of that. I love where your head is at. It lets me know I'm uh, doing what I want to be doing. I, you know what I can promise you is one of my favorite Betsy and Saturnine interactions I've ever written is in Knights of X1. Like, it is maybe... I've written a lot of scenes with the two of them. Mm-hmm. I love, like, they're just so fun to write together. And I love, I, I have always been into the complicated romance in the story sense of the sorcerer in the night, the sorceress in the night, you know, the- All of that Yeah, stuff. exactly. Yeah. The, well, I, the, I love that I said that right as you said Final Fantasy VIII. Yeah. The idea and Cypher vibe. Exactly. Like the sorceress's night, you know, like that kind yeah, of- Yeah, you know, Utena and Anthe, or, sure. you know, just, I, I always love the vibe of the promised one and then the sword that that, that protects them. I've always been super into Sailor that. Uranus and Sailor Neptune are also that. Yeah. <laughs> And so like, there's kind of, there's some fun in writing Betsy and Saturnine as women that understand the importance of their role and their relationship to one another, but aren't always sure if they like one another. Mm-hmm. And it's fun. I, I love, I love a good relationship where you're just like, you know, I love a good bicker. I, I, I love a good bicker. I think it's a really fun thing to write. I also just love always the subtext of her knowing Earth-616's version of Saturnine as like Brian's girlfriend back in the day. Yes. Because she knew Courtney Ross really well. So like there's yeah. a lot of weird, like their dynamic is so unique in terms of like two characters in the Marvel Universe you could throw together that I enjoy every time they're on page. Thank you. And it's very complex. That's what I'll say, I guess, to move on from a question that I really love that can't talk about too much. Right. You can't answer the other part of the question. Yeah. What would you say if you could say like one word? Well, there's kissing in this book. Yeah, there's kissing in this book. All I can say is support the book so I can tell more and more stories because uh the more complicated it gets. Pre-order Knights of X right now if you would like to see as much let's not even talk about slow burn if you want to see some burning yeah buy a book but i do yeah i love a relationship that is uniquely complicated that is like these two characters how many characters in comics can you say are like two beautiful women closely bickering because one of them cast a spell and got her heart's true protector but it's not the boy she likes it's her sister like it's such a weird <laughs> situation so I'm, I'm glad people are having fun with it and the betsy rachel dynamic too which more to come more to come steph k writes 
Hi, Connor and Teeny. Thank you for treating us to this bonus episode. I happen to know Steph is British, so I'm just going to do it. Just very quickly, I wanted to say how much I enjoyed Excalibur. I'm similar in age to Connor, and I understand that not much in X fandom surpasses the Wild West of being a Betsy Braddock fan, with the added bonus that I am an English white woman. It's been a very patient wait for proper handling of Betsy's identity, family, sexuality, and obviously, Canon. And so the way all those threads came together in Excalibur was lovely. Thank you very much. My question for Teeny actually relates to how you approach magic and myth, because I've really liked the expansion of Otherworld and your exploration of magic as a type of cultural practice. I was wondering whether mysticism and magic are subjects that have personal significance to you. I don't often see this handled as ambitiously and thoughtfully outside of comics creators who are, interestingly, practitioners themselves. Also, should we expect knights to be quite different in tone and theme to Excalibur? Apologies if the first question is is a bit nosy. Hopefully it will sound better in Connor's voice. Cheers. All the very best. Steph slash Diodati. No, those are great questions. It's not nosy at all. The, you know, the thesis for Excalibur came out of my love of these ideas of how people and cultures handle change and the unseen and the unknown. I read a lot of you know, anthropology is a very problematic field. I'm glad I don't have to navigate the ethical minefield of working in it. And, you know, but I, I do love reading other people's research and interrogating it, which if you do decide to start reading any anthropological texts, do interrogate everything. Yeah, you read. absolutely. Don't take um, everything at face value necessarily. But yeah, because even that honestly is part of the study of it is understanding the views of the people that are doing the anthropology and then right. the follow-ups and who those are done by and the times and it's the study of man, including this man or woman writing this journal article, right? Like, like when I say, you know, like reality TV is also anthropology. Don't get it twisted. But um, it's the anthropology of both the people on the show and of the production team. Yes, like that's the lens. Interesting about, I mean, I could talk about reality TV all day, so we better not. So, yeah. So that being said, one of the most interesting things to me in anthropology are, are the systems of magic and myth that people create. And there's like, you know, speaking of creators who are also practitioners, you know, there's an Alan Moore talk that I listened to once that talks about how we have lost some of our taste for magic because we've separated out the tasks that magic was once meant to do. Mm-hmm. Like magic was meant to, you know, heal a sick, heal your mind, marry you, make the crops grow, you know, get you a hunt, uh, everything. Magic was what you turned to for that. Now we have different people to do those different things, you know, and we, because of that, magic is no longer really has a use for us anymore because we don't need to pray. If we have a toothache, we just go to the dentist. And so it was interesting to me to think about mutants as a culture who has the benefit of all these other specializations, what they have never had before, or at least not in the modern era is what feels like a miracle that gives them a place where they can all be together. And I talk about a lot with Apocalypse that he says the Krakoan age is the end of death and the end of distance. They can never kill us and they can never keep us apart. And that's like, that's how you destroy a culture. Yeah, yeah. By killing them or by- Forcing them into a diaspora and then destroying them once they're split up. Right, just destroying their cultural traditions. And so Apocalypse's thesis is kind of, they can never kill us, they can never keep us apart. And so mutants can never lose their cultural tradition. Cut to, oh, wait, they don't have one. Cut what do we to make? Yeah. me writing this in an essay to Jonathan when he asked for a book pitch, and I instead wrote this. <laughs> <laughs> and that was my pitch. One thing I find interesting about your approach to writing magic and occult stuff, just as someone who knows you, is that I don't think of you as someone who's like, especially, I mean, we, we, we talk about astrology or whatever, but like, you're not like really a new age or no. mystic person yourself. 
my first creator own book was called The Skeptics for a reason. I think James yeah. Randi was a brilliant man. And when you look at people like James Randi and you look at people like Houdini, even who famously were skeptics of spiritualism. Yeah. Yeah. Houdini famously became a skeptic after having his heart, you know, having his heart broken by a medium who he knew was false because the, his, the medium was like, your mother says hello. And Houdini was like, my mother does not speak English. Right. And I, there, there's actually an incredible Kate Bush song on the dreaming about called Houdini about. Yes. Specifically, the pact that he made with his wife, like Mm -hmm. the secret, the code word that they came up with was that if he came through in a spiritual medium session, he would call her Rosabelle, which was not her name. Allegedly, in a seance, the medium leaned into her ear and said, Rosabelle, believe. And that's what the song's about. I never heard that story, but I know that song. I didn't know that's what it was about. Can't stop that's good. Anyway, it's good stuff. It's good stuff because he was a skeptic. But if anybody's going to prove that there's exactly. an afterlife, he's going to be like, "Well, I got to tell her. I told her I would." And that's why, um, <laughs> like, I am such a person who loves and adores the study of, of magic, but I'm also an intense skeptic. Is because I'm like, I, you know, call it connection or whatever. Like, I, there are things about humankind that we don't know and we don't understand, but we we and maybe they're not meant to be understood, but I think there are a lot of things that we can and do understand. And I just sure. I really I I love a skeptic who wants to be a believer. That's kind of the person I am. That's me. Yeah, and so I'm I've always, you know, like I'm not like a woo-woo new agey person, but like I'm absolutely someone who is a like interested in it. Yeah, the occult, but like, you know, I magical thinking gets dangerous if you get too far into it. Yeah, so. I th- I think that though that makes you a really interesting writer for Captain Britain because Alan Moore obviously is the thing about Alan Moore that I find actually most interesting maybe about his work overall is that I think he's a believer who wants to be a skeptic. And coming at it from sort of opposite ends there like the other world that he created is so merciless in its bureaucracy and in its lack of magic and I like that your other world while it's just as merciless in its bureaucracy when you got to reshape it after Secret Wars it's like well now it is a land of magic the way that you would want it to be but it's not yeah it's not fun though (laughs) and in some sense that's just you know comics being in a different place right like when he was writing he was breaking it down like no it needs to be really real and now there's this emphasis on realism in comics and it's actually very freeing to be like right yeah like doing brazil now has a different feel than right doing brazil it's been done you know exactly. like it's like do so something it, different is the, yeah the, the fantasy land or the afterlife or whatever actually being boring like the dmv i mean we've all seen it in beetlejuice we've all right seen they've it done it now life. like 50 times so the dimensional development court is not that interesting in other world setting now but here we are in avalon except like it's all flipped upside down. If you think about it for more than two sec, I mean, Rome is literally upside down, but like that, yeah. you know, that stuff is great. Yeah. I love it. I'm, I'm enjoying that very much. I can't wait for nights. I think that this is the book you were meant to really be writing at that company. Like I'm really excited about it. It's really fun. We have a cool title, which I like. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. David Lozano writes, hello, Connor, an esteemed recurring guest, Ms. Howard. Connor didn't like it when I called him Mr. Goldsmith, which I get, but I also don't know either of you, so I figured formality would be more appropriate than calling you teeny. Sorry if it's a bother, though. It's okay that you call me Mr. Goldsmith. It just makes me feel old. 
Anyway, I'm still a relatively new follower of the pod, comparatively speaking, and I'm happy to say that your episode dealing with the good Captain Betsy Braddock was the third one I listened to. I thoroughly enjoyed every second of it from both of you. Now that some time has passed, though, I've been wondering something about Betsy's standing in the 616 post the body swap and unswap, as well as her perception of said standing. Do you think Betsy carries the reputation of being a body snatcher, particularly among superheroic women of color, or do you think she thinks she does? If so, how do you imagine she tries to address or course correct for that? Sorry if this is a heavy question, but I feel like with Betsy's reputation among comics fans who don't know the full story and what she actually did and didn't do, I've been wondering for a while if there are people in the 616 world who similarly have misconceptions about her. I wish a good day to you both, and I thank you for your time. I read the Malice story as being sort of an externalization of Betsy's anxieties about the fact that she thinks everybody thinks she stole this woman's life. Yes, in her mind. It's one of those situations where in her mind, it's like, okay, um, this is a thing that people with anxiety like me do a and lot. me, yeah. Yeah, where we do things because we think we have to do them to make something up, but everyone else is like, no, you're just a good person. Just be good and don't do bad right. things and it's like, okay. You don't have to be constantly apologizing for things. Yeah, and it's like, I, you know, I go out of my way to be a good friend to my friends because I love when my friends are good to me. You know, being a good friend is something I'm really proud of and it's something I really love. I think just honestly connecting with each other in friendship is so important. And I give, I put a lot of value to my friendships, but sometimes when I'm anxious or when I'm, you know, doubting myself, I tell myself, well, I have to be a good friend because I'm a, a, because I'm a bad one, because I'm a leech, because I take too much from my friends, because they resent me, because I've done wrong things in the past. That's why I'm a good friend, because I'm making up for what a bad one I really would be if I didn't force myself to be good. Mm -hmm. And that's bullshit. That's a cognitive error. If you go to therapy, they talk you out of that. Like, the truth (laughs) is, you have control over nothing but your behavior and your thoughts are purely thoughts. And you can choose to react to those thoughts however you want. So you can just say, "Uh, no, actually... What I do is what matters. And what matters is that I step up for my friends whenever I can. And you know what? I have proof that they feel that way about me because they do the same for me. And what Conan is saying in in those issues, I think, is like, okay, I get it. You feel bad. You need to do your job and help everybody right now. Because that's something you can control. And I would appreciate it if you would get your shit together. Yeah, like what is the line in Heather's that something like our like your like your miserable bullshit now has a body count? Or yeah, something like your, that? Your, like your teen angst bullshit now has a body count. And it's like yeah. Betsy, your white woman guilt will soon have a body count if you don't put your Captain Britain suit back on and get back in the fray. It shouldn't be my job to come tell you you're absolved. Yes. You need to be okay with whatever you feel guilty about and just move on. But Kanon as a character, I think it also, it didn't make sense for her to be the sort of person who would be like, I don't care. Like, let her suffer. Like, Kanon is a hero. And especially in the 90s, we know that, like, once Kanon understood, I, I just did the Kanon episode, which will be up later this week when you hear this, I think, maybe. In the 90s, when she's revanche, like, once she realizes she is Kanon, that is Betsy, like, and understands what happened, She's very concerned with like making sure that this situation gets sorted out and that Betsy will be okay because she feels responsible for what Matsuo has done on some. So like, there's a lot of interesting stuff, and I think she would be like, it wouldn't make sense for this heroic woman to let this person who she doesn't know very well but is connected to in this really like intense like become a shrieking ghost in other world out of guilt over like this situation. Like she's like right. 
I gotta go fix this because you need to get your shit together. Come get your yeah, shit together. I mean, also, like, it would have just been such a disservice to what other writers were doing with the character. I can't have Zeb writing Kanan as this incredible, complicated, you know, hero. A, a woman with a crazy past, but a good woman, a hero. Like, it just wouldn't... It, it, she's not... She's a psychic. She's not dumb. I think she pretty quickly could, you know, clock on to the fact that it's like, it has to be me, guys, whether or not it should be. Right. It has I to I have be to me. do it. I, and I love that moment. You've said that this is just you speaking through Rogue's mouth a little bit. But like when Rogue's like, I don't know about all of that. Like, I don't know if that, I think that's a good idea. And Khan's like, did you wonder what I think? Because no one has asked me what I think. Yeah. I mean, that was one of those moments where I was like, you know, as a white woman, there are obviously concerns I have about telling that story and making sure I don't, you know, through my own ignorance step in something right hurtful or you know disingenuous to the character i don't know if this is the best idea and Conan's like doesn't matter you got to do it it's the other yeah, line basically. i love in that story is it isn't something <laughs> to be fixed it just is because right. sometimes it isn't something to be fixed you just got to deal with it yeah like ultimately there was nothing else that was going not only was there nothing else that was going to work for betsy like hearing from Conan, it's also that And it's not because she, you know, needs, it's not because it's like, oh, I'm, I'm, she, Conan has to do more work to save me. It's just like, that's who the connection is with. And to have other characters solve it for them in the real world, having a mediator and, and all that I'm sure would be really useful, but this is a comic book. And the most satisfying version of it is putting the two characters with the most complicated connection together to solve a problem together. Yeah. And that's why I do the bad version of it. A few issues before where Betsy is. Well, that's what I was going to say. And where Betsy is having all these thoughts she feels guilty about. And Conan says, please don't voice your thoughts. I'm asking you not to. And she does in this alternate world and she does it anyway and causes, presumably we don't get to see it, but now Conan has to, this alternate Conan has to deal with all that bullshit, which she didn't need to know. And it wasn't her business. And it's like, shut up. It also is part of Betsy's arc where it is foolish and wrong for Betsy to think that the actual confrontation would go bad because this very strange old universe confrontation went bad. But who wouldn't be like, yeah, I just looked the body I used to wear around all the time in the eyes and she told me to shut the fuck up. Never right. Mind. So like now I don't want to talk to <laughs> mine who actually yeah. has a reason to be mad at me. Right. Like, which, which like it is like that is. Yeah. It's just this is cool stuff that you can only do in fantasy. And I mean, I think it's I think it worked really well. And Malice, I think, underlines like. To get back to the question, I think a lot of superheroes are probably very confused about Psylocke and what her deal is. And now with Captain Britain and they're like, that's Brian's sister. I thought Brian's sister was Japanese. Like, I I bet you there's a lot of really confused superheroes out there. And I bet there is a group chat of some superheroines of color who are like, I don't fuck with Betsy. (laughs) Yeah, I'm sure. I am sure because like, that's a valid group chat for them to have. No, I I do not feel about Betsy or about any character I've ever written or will ever write that everyone should accept them or agree with them. Obviously when I'm writing, you know, superhero comics, I'm writing characters that are at their core heroic. But they're flawed and they've and and yeah. you can react yeah. to them any kind of way. You can dislike Betsy Braddock the way I write her. Um I often really love writers that write characters in ways I, I that make me dislike them. You know, I like good a good story, even if it makes me, you know, maybe dislike a character. And yeah, there are moments where I've deliberately written Betsy to be in the wrong. And I think that in the beginning, people that weren't familiar with my writing really bumped on that. Mm-hmm. 
but you know, to, yeah, to, to go back to the question, like, I do not think anyone is ever obligated to forgive anyone. And I do not even think that, you know, Psylocke was obligated to forgive Captain Britain, nor do, am I sure that she has. What really worked for me was that your arc happens and then immediately, like at the same time, the mm-hmm. Hellions arc that takes place a little bit earlier is playing out. And we see that like, yeah, Conan's being very mature about all of this, but she's being very mature about all of this because of what just happened in Murder World <laughs> where yeah. she got yeah. to get out a lot of her emotions about this situation and also is herself feeling enormously guilty about selling out the team to Sinister. So she recognizes in Betsy, I know what it feels like to feel like you're a really bad person. However, I still have to do my job and so do you. So like get your cape on, let's do your fucking job. Like that is how it comes across to me in certain sense. And that helps them reach it. Like I do think that they, I mean, it's what she says to Grey Crow in the Hellions issue at the gala. He's like, you two are good now. And she's like, yeah, we understand each other, I think. Also, I killed her for 30 years in a dream. That helps. But like, yeah. but, but she's being genuine when she says that, like, I think we get each other. And like, we've said what we need to say or telepathically communicated what we needed to say. And like, we're okay now. Yeah. And I think that is sometimes like the best thing for a story. Ultimately, I the take is like, it's complicated for a reason because I think that's the best version of the story is but yeah the malice issue coming immediately after that was because I mean frankly malice is someone who does actively steal people's bodies to do horrible things with them and so it's like no Betsy like if you were that person you'd be this person and even that person is welcome on Krakoa and even that person is hurting people because she's a person who's hurt herself and like there's Mm -hmm. you know there's more to it I mean the real grabby comics fan also version of it is like after I did an issue where you know I had you know Psylocke and Captain Britain on a level of understanding them I have to immediately I want to give them a mission I want to give them something to do right exactly now they have to fight something you know yeah like now there's now we have to see how they're valuable together and it was really fun in that issue to come up with like the ways in which Betsy and Kanon could connect that other people couldn't because it's like you know they're this horrible thing that happened to them isn't just they're not just victims it gave them like a dual tech it gave right. them that's a chrono trigger reference to me, I Yen. got it I <laughs> thought immediately of antipode which is that's right and uh, Marl right Harry from Ireland writes and I'm not doing that accent because my Irish accent's bad and I'm recording Banshee really soon and I've got to practice because I know people like expected of me in the siren episode was an embarrassment to my ancestors like he says hi connor okay so here's my questions to teeny on a few things hi teeny as well sorry i didn't say that before one what is it like to write catwoman after being in marvel brain writing mode for so long since dc's new approach of everything can be canon for your stories did that help alleviate some pressure of continuity consistency i okay so i come from the jonathan hickman school of not letting continuity pressure me (laughs) But it does, you know, I do have to be respectful of the world in which I'm working and I am limited somewhat, but you know, your editors will tell you when you're limited. So like, you know, don't be afraid to like push Mm -hmm. big and weird. Yeah. They'll tell you no, if it's a no. Yeah. What is it like to write Catwoman after being in Marvel brain for so long? It's awesome. It's great. I get to write a story that's super grounded. There's nowhere less magical in the comics universe than Gotham. Like Gotham is so uh, down to earth. I'm a huge DC fan. I'm a huge Gotham City fan. I have a whole shelf above me of Nightwings and Catwoman right now. I have loved Selena Kyle since I was a little girl. She's, I don't know, she's always been a big inspiration to me. There's a reason that a lot of people were like, oh, that makes sense. Mm -hmm. (laughs) The book got announced, you know, I've been trying to, to 
dressed like Darwin Cook's Catwoman my whole life. Yeah, I mean, um, she, that's very much the vibe of your wardrobe, for sure. Yeah, I, I love the character. So it's huge and it's great. It's really amazing to go from literally writing one woman of whom exists hundreds of versions that have the potential to interact in a bajillion different realities while living and fighting in the sort of hub for those realities, which is also its own bad place in a war right now. Also, there's another realm back home called Krakoa to a lady who lives in an apartment in a stolen stolen apartment and (laughs) beats up mafia boys. Yeah. (laughs) Like it's a different, it's a different set of muscles for sure. It is. And it's, it makes it possible in a way that like writing two X books would be a lot more exhausting for me right now than writing an X book and a Gotham book. I love, I always joke, I'm bi-coastal, I'm Krakoa and Gotham. Like, I love Yeah, it. I think it's good not to have all of your eggs in one basket mentally and creatively, honestly. Like, totally. It's good to be doing multiple things. Two, what are some other DC characters you'd like to write about, if you can say? So the, when I think of like the DC thing I would most want to write after Catwoman, it's something that like, I don't know, I feel like it would have to be one of those like books where they put the year after it. Like they did like Wonder Woman 77. And oh, all that. sure. Yeah. Like I, I specifically want to write the like 80s Wolfman and Perez Titans. That would be fat. Like to do like a Judas contract riff now kind of thing. Yeah. Like a, just not necessarily that story specifically, but like new teen Titans, like that era. Yeah. Like those comics were part of why those comics are so beloved is because they managed to look like beautiful four color classic, just George Perez, the God, you know, incredible art. One of the best ever. While having these incredibly adult plots. And that felt like the kind of thing you want to read about when you've just left home and you're not sure if you're grown yet. And these are challenges and people are doing bad things and you're trying to be an adult and you don't want to run home. You know, that the cover of like like Dick and Wally like leaving their costumes behind mm-hmm. is like one of my favorite covers of all time. Nobody uses the white space for emotional effect like George Perez, I swear. It's one of the DC things that I read when I was younger, even though I didn't care for DC particularly, because by Wolfman's own admission, they took a huge page out of Chris Claremont's book in terms of how he had been writing the X-Men. Mm-hmm. It has a lot of similar DNA in the sense of like, it is a soap opera about these young people trying to learn how to be functional adults. And like, it has the superhero stuff on top of it. So you can do that. But and it's it's so emotional. And yeah, it's, so it's like all about sexy. though, like the emotion and the sexiness of oh my God. being a hormonal angsty teen. My favorite stories from that time is when Starfire has to go back to Tamarin yeah, to like get great. married mm-hmm. and Dick goes with her and he's like wearing the traditional Tamarin like skimpy bird boy costume. And, and that's a romance like, novel plot, by the yes, way. My girlfriend has to have an arranged marriage. It is some courtship of princess leia shit it's literally the courtship of princess leia (laughs) like it literally is and like he goes to tamarin and he's like wearing the like traditional costume and he's like weeping like every other page he's like why and it's such a romance novel i love it so much yeah that era like if if i could just conjure out of anywhere it would be i would get to write the titans and i I got to do it very briefly in my nightwing story I had to find mm-hmm. a reason, but I uh, I just adore that book and that era. It's It'd be my dream. That'd be a lot of fun. Lastly, what's it like to finally write in an ongoing way for Rachel in the Krakoa era? Getting to write such a character in a fantasy book must be so fun and interesting, and I'd love to hear more of your thoughts in advance of the book. Thanks for taking the time to answer my questions, even if you just do one. Love your work, Teeny. Connor, you're always a delight to hear. Best from Ireland, Harry. Thank you, Harry. But yeah, to answer your second question, Rachel is someone I love a lot. I've been 
including her in Excalibur in small ways mm-hmm. since pretty early on. She's like a legacy member of the Excalibur team. So it. She named it. She named Excalibur. Yeah. Yeah. She's like one of the OGs. I was never not going to have her in there in some capacity. And then it was just like the evolution through Excalibur. And also just like, she's one of those characters where I was like, really? She's not on a team? Right. Like (laughs) if she's not spoken for, I'll take her. Absolutely. You know? Yeah. Yeah, basically. So, and it was cool too. Like I I wanted to, in Knights, get a chance to bring some legacy Excalibur characters Mm -hmm. back on the board. And I did. You certainly did. We've seen some previews of another classic Excalibur member that I am excited to see on the page. He's a Leo. Let's not be creative. He about it. is definitely a Leo. <laughs> Kylan Hive Rise. Elizabeth <laughs> writes Hello, Connor, and esteemed guest, the lovely Teeny Howard. I'm very excited to hear the secret file since I've really enjoyed the Betsy and Monet episodes. My question is about Teeny's Catwoman run. What made you want to bring Aiko and Onyx back? I really enjoyed Aiko and Genevieve Valentine's short run, so I was super thrilled she was coming back. Also, congratulations on a banger first two issues. I'm so excited for the next one, Elizabeth. Thank you, Elizabeth. I just, I love Gotham City. And so like the second I got to get my hands in the toy box, I did. You know, if you've read, I don't know if, if folks have read the Onyx issue yet, but there's another character that shows up briefly. No, this is going up the- before your Onyx issue comes out. Okay, so there, you know, there are, there's a character in that issue who another, who else, another one who shows it briefly, who's a, a Gotham mainstay that I love, or rather not a mainstay, but like a... A classic Gotham character. Yeah, just characters that I love that I just felt were there for me to use. Aiko especially was just really useful to have as a character who could be interesting and conflicted. And it was just... I don't read Catwoman regularly, so I wasn't 100% sure of like what her current vibe was because I don't read DC that much, honestly. And it helped characterize her in your first issue very well to be like, this is my ex. Here is what our vibe is like. And that helped establish like who Selena is to me. Yeah, yeah. And very much Selena's feelings about it, you know, like, well, this one I kissed and then never called again. Like, right, you know. Like- I'm obviously in that book saying a lot about what it's like navigating the world as a woman, a lot of different types of women. And it was a cool and important thing for me to do early on to point out that there isn't one right way to navigate the world as a woman and to kind of tell everyone early on that this is not a girl power book. This is a book about the complicated life of being a woman who wants to change the world and get taken seriously and have real power and what real power is. Um, So to have Aiko be like, I'm not like. She's girl bossing the mafia, right? And it's like, that is a choice. It's not necessarily advancing the cause of all women. But also, you know, you have things that are important to you. This is your family's legacy. There are cultural elements here that are important to you. You see yourself differently than maybe Selena sees you, maybe the other men see you. It was just important to me early on to have, I think the bad version of the story is Selena goes to Aiko and Aiko says, you know, yes. And they go, you know, beat up the boys together and they win. That's the bad version of the story. The, the good version is Aiko is like, in the time you have not seen me, I have become powerful by, yeah, putting up with some shit. Yeah, by making some compromises and you are not going to take it from me. Exactly. I am not going to sacrifice the things I have done the compromises and the sacrifices I've made, I'm not going to then immediately sacrifice them for you. We are not the same. Just because we're both women. Like I'm not mm-hmm. going to do that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And even just because we're both queer women, you know, and even like, because I've like had is... an intimate anything, you know, like exactly. 
that's, I mean, that's really what all, uh, my favorite thing is just making these relationships as real, as complicated as possible. And to make them as, you know, just unpredictable and interesting because when I'm watching things and reading things, that's what I love. That's to me, what makes the story feel good and unpredictable is not just throwing in big crashing element after big crashing element, but just layering in all of these interactions. And when you do that, it's almost like, you know, it's almost like role-playing. You can stop and ask the characters in your head, what are you going to do about this? Where's this going to go? Yeah. And they'll tell you, you know, well, she's done this. She's going to do like, you know, I know these characters intimately. I know who they are and what they would do. And what about Onyx? I love that cover. Oh, it's an incredible cover and it's incredibly sexy. I just think Onyx is like hot. and I've always liked her. There's a dearth of black women on the page that are superheroes and she's just kicks ass and I wanted to bring her back. I think she's tough and sexy. I love the issues with her. And I think also it was another, I I couldn't shake the idea that it's like, you know, if Batman is not around, who are the vigilantes? There's the Bat family. Right. And there's Catwoman who is not really Bat family. You know, she, we are, and then I'm in the Bat office. And if you were naming like five other vigilantes in Gotham, Onyx would probably be among, who are not Bat family people explicitly. Yeah. Onyx would be one of the first five I'd come up with probably, right? Yeah. And she's, you know, she's a character who's had these like agreements with Bruce Wayne in the past, but I like, you know, I just, I I loved the idea of her and Catwoman teaming up as defenders of Gotham. Because I can't think of them ever interacting. I don't know if they have, but I, and I loved it. And I love who Onyx is to Selena as a like, you know, just an exterior voice, just another when Onyx says, be careful, it's different from when Echo says, be careful. It's different from when, you know, Bruce Wayne says, be careful. Mm-hmm. Onyx is looking at different things. She's aware of her own world and Selena's world too. You know, Onyx has been in town as, you know, as long as anyone. She also, in addition to being a black woman, she's a butch woman in a medium that doesn't have that many of them. And so it's just, that cover is just really cool to me because I'm like, we don't see women who look like that very much in a superhero comic. Yeah, exactly. And like Nico draws her so well. And yeah, and it was also exactly like the fun for me of getting to write a queer femme woman flirting with a queer butch woman. Yeah, like, that's fun. Just like like calling her like a hunk. and like, Yeah, yeah. I love that. Like that to me is just, that's just candy for me. That's just me getting to have fun. <laughs> <laughs> making, making, you know, femme girls flirt. With butch girls. With yeah. Butch girls. It's yeah, it's fun. just fun. It's a fun thing to do if you're writing a superhero comic and you get to do it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now we have some more general questions to sort of take us out. Yes. God, I've still got to write pages. Oh my God, I'm sorry. I know. Okay, I'm, I'm having fun. Job. I, think, I think this is good. <laughs> I, I think that, and the fans have been crying out. I mean, it's been almost a year since your last episode of Cerebro. So I'm glad to deliver. Really, you know. And they're all jealous because they're like, they see us on Instagram and they're like, I want to hear more of your thoughts. I'm like, those are just for me, the thoughts from tonight. We had dinner. Yes. You don't get that's, those thoughts. That's my therapy. When <laughs> we go and drink lavender mimosas. <laughs> it's a good time. Bryce Lavender, speaking of, writes, <gasps> Dear Connor and esteemed guest. Did I do that right? You did that absolutely right, Bryce. First off, I would just like to say, Teeny, your work is a huge inspiration to me. If you would have told me two years ago I'd be deeply invested in the Braddock family, I wouldn't have believed it. You put so much care and effort into your work, and it's evident in every speech bubble and caption. My question is about being a marginalized comics pro. How do you deal with all the people who say ridiculous shit about you on the internet? As a minority writer myself who dreams of writing X-Men and wants to someday write about mutants being depressed or queer or whatever, how could I tune all the stupidity out? Thank you, Bryce. P.S. Irene Adler threw the first brick at Stonewall. She certainly saw the brick coming, at the very least. (laughs) Hey. Bryce, thank you. 
well, I can give you some advice because I also really love about writing about mutants and other characters being uh, queer and depressed. And I'm also an expert at turning <laughs> out the bullshit. On those things and yeah. Right. Yeah, an expert at turning <laughs> out the bullshit. It just doesn't matter. I don't know how to say that in a way that it doesn't, I don't mean that you guys and your thoughts don't matter, but it's just that like the story you're writing is like, okay, one of the biggest uh, moments I had with myself recently when I was thinking about, you know, because of course it comes up that I know there are people that don't like my work and I know right. there are people that are uncool about it. But one, I cannot think of a single writer who doesn't have people that don't like their work unless people don't read their work. Like if people have opinions about you, it means that people are reading. You. Right. I also have always in my life really fancied storytellers. Like, you know, I've said it time and time again, but there's a Trent Reznor quote I love where he's like, you know, your parents don't like my work. Well, fuck them. It's not for them. And less that I'm like, I don't think I'm like super punk rock and making work for people's parents, but it's more like, you just have to accept that. Like you're making your work for someone. Right. And like with you, Bryce, like to hear that I inspire you, like, that's amazing. I don't care if other people don't like it because there's plenty of really popular stuff that I don't like. I'm so picky, you guys. Like, I I don't like a lot of stuff. <laughs> I am notoriously the <laughs> one that walks out of a movie not liking it. I like a lot of things and I'm very passionate about the things I like. But I don't know. I just I had a, a kind of, you know, come to Jesus, for lack of a better word, moment with myself where I was like, who am I going to be prouder of? The me that got too scared to make work or the me that told the stories I wanted to tell? And then who am I prouder of when I think of artists I like and who am I inspired by and it's people that do the same thing people that um a big part of this business especially if you're someone that wants to write for anything episodic comics tv whatever so you have to be comfortable with leaving people a little bit unsatisfied and kind of just understand that you're driving and that they don't know where you're going yet so it's a little scary for them I mean I don't love surprises if you're the person I'm the kind of person if you're like okay get in the car we're going somewhere I'm like where I want to know but in a story I don't in a story I, I love just being swept up and being a little unsure and then being like thrilled and pleased and excited when I like the way it pans out underneath me and if you don't like the way it panned out that's fine thanks for coming along for the ride like <laughs> <laughs> When I say I don't care if you don't like it, it's not me being a bitch. It's that like, you're allowed to not like it. It's not that I don't care. It's that like, okay, like, you know? And so I feel like Bryce, you got to do the same thing that like, if you're doing something that's working for some people, it's going to not work for others. And some people, when they don't get your work are going to be very vocal about it because like they want to get your work. Like I am the most annoying about movies that I almost really like. Right. I feel like they did it all. I don't talk about shit if I just didn't like it at all. Same, but like, I can't expect people to do that. Like no, you guys can do all you want on Twitter. I just won't go there. No, no, of course. I just mean that like, if I get really head up about something, usually it's because there was something in it that I really liked. Mm -hmm. Like the reason why I get upset about X-Men stories I don't like is because I love the fucking X-Men. So I can always mm -hmm. see how an X-Men story I think is bad could have been a good X-Men story. I start editing in my, you know, like that's the stuff that I focus on. If I see a TV show that I don't like and I don't think about it ever again, then it's not something I'm gonna, you know, I think people have an emotional response to things they care about, you know? Yeah, like I definitely had some heated group chats about how much I didn't like Book of Boba Fett. Like, yeah. There you go, <laughs> yeah, right. But ultimately like, yeah, I, you guys are more than welcome to go talk shit about my work on online. Just, just, you know, don't tag me or do. I'm not gonna see it. Well, right. But I guess, I guess to address Bryce's question, Bryce, there will be people that won't be nice and there will be people that will actually go out of their way and if you block them they will make new accounts they will go out of their way 
to let you know they came to Marvel Subway to order an X-Men sandwich the way they wanted it and they don't like what you made for them. <laughs> right. And I imagine that gets easier the more of them do it, unfortunately. That's, like, that's right. not a good it way is. to, that's not like a happy thing, but it's just a fact. Like after the 10th time that you get something like that, yeah, you just, I imagine it's just less impactful. And also, Bryce, if the teeny Howard story teaches you nothing, let it teach you that some people, some things just read better in trade. Some of us are just writing for the trade, you know, or the thing is like, it's not that I don't write. I, right. I do write I think for the you monthly do reader. write for the monthly reader, but I think your stuff reads especially good in trade because you have a long game plan always, you know? I write to deliberately leave the monthly reader unsatisfied in a way that is more satisfying when they read the whole thing because it's a story and right. you should spend the whole season <laughs> saying, what's next? And the finale, you go, oh shit, what's next? Like, I think, Bryce, that if you want to write, you will be better off if you can internalize the displeasure that people will sometimes have with your story if you can just accept that as a form of engagement and understand that like you know you shouldn't this is another jonathanism you shouldn't get between the reader and the story they have to have whatever relationship they have to the thing they're reading Mm -hmm. and it's not really about you nope nope it's not they don't know you nope they don't. And it, it, it's simply just be comfortable with the discomfort. In general, humans should be more comfortable with discomfort. I think it's where we grow. It's where we learn. And I think art teaches us. And I think art is a safe place to play with discomfort, you know, and, and obviously there are different levels to that. I'm not going to put things in an X-Men comic that are going to seriously trigger people into having a bad day. But I do think that, you know, making people a little unsure about whether or not this, you know, fictional world is going to turn out okay is how you engage them. And so the sooner you can be okay with the fact that it's like, yeah, I'm making you uncomfortable. And yes, you might think you hate me for it, but it's just noise. And I know where I'm going and I'm telling a story. And it's really satisfying to have people show up. And, you know, one of the favorite things I love hearing is well played. Because <laughs> I'm like, that's right. You knew yeah. you you got it was a it was a game and it was a roller coaster. We were going up and down, and at the end, it was a bet whether or not I was going to land this fucking airplane or not, and I I did it. Here we are. <laughs> we survived, and Airlines. you enjoyed yourself. Great. <laughs> you survived the experience. I mean, that's, that's really right. what it is. You know, that's the point of the X Men. That's what it's supposed to feel like. Right, and like it's the only time I get hurt when fans come back with cruelty is I kind of think like that, right? It's like, no matter what, this X-Men comic is not going to be me telling you, you suck. So please don't do that back. (laughs) (laughs) Like it might, I know you might feel like, but like, just like you don't know me, I don't know you. And if I care, if I made a, if I said that a character was, you know, a dick and that character reminds you of you. And so you feel like I'm calling you a dick. That's clearly not what's happening. (laughs) That's a conversation you're having with yourself. It's also a conversation you're having with yourself that I think is valuable. Yes, absolutely. Art should make you have these conversations with yourself. I am so glad I'm provoking real serious, intense emotions in the people reading my work. And I think that's a good mindset to have uh, for you too, Bryce. Just make make your peace with that. Make your peace with the fact that if you like reading work that scares you or discomforts you a little and you want to make the same kind of work, you have to accept that people might feel that way sometimes. Andrew Walsh asks what we think Selena's favorite heist movie would be. Heist movie, huh? I'm going to say Entrapment with Catherine Zeta-Jones and Sean Connery. Really? 
not like she thinks it's the best movie ever, but I feel like Catherine Zeta-Jones in like a terrible heist movie is like a comfort film for her because she saw it once on like basic cable when she was in like year one squalor with what's her name? Holly. Oh, Holly. <laughs> Maybe. This may be me projecting because whenever that movie is on TV, I'm just like, yes, descend on that wire. Catherine Zeta-Jones would have been an impeccable Catwoman, but never got to play Catwoman. She, yeah, she would have been a good one. You know, I have to say, unpopular opinion, I don't like the Oceans movies. Mm. So not this. You know, when I honestly, when I think about Selena's favorite, when I think about movies Selena watches, and I think about like, like, you know, movies she would watch to be like a badass criminal. I actually don't think of like heist movies. I think of like Faster Pussycat Kill Kill and sure. inspired things like Death Proof. Death Proof for sure. Also, she loves Bound by the Wachowskis for sure. Oh, yeah. For sure. Gina Gershon, also a Selena. Uh, also Jennifer Tilly. Either of them could have been Selena, really. Different Selenas, but... Selena Kyle loves uh, the Verhoeven masterpiece Showgirls, and I will hear no different. Obviously. Selena Kyle was opening night at Benedetta this year, for sure. Oh, yeah, yeah, totally. She was there with uh, Celine and her nun costume. Verhoeven's doing Catholics <laughs> and nuns? You know, that's just Catwoman when in Rome, honestly. Uh, I can't believe I haven't seen Benedetta yet. I haven't either. Do you want to, like, rent it? We should do, yeah, we should do, a, we should do a watch night. I know Blake wants to watch it, too, so. Excellent. This actually isn't a question, but I thought it was cute. Kim writes, Hello, Connor and Teeny. Not a question, so no need to read on air. I just wanted to thank Teeny for her run on Excalibur. The scene where Apocalypse comes to get Richter and bring him to Krakoa really struck me and helped me get through something pretty rough in my own life that I was going through at the time. Great run. Love it. Making my way through the rest of your X-Men stuff at the moment. Definitely going to check out Catwoman once I'm able to... Wait! Teeny Howard wrote a Vampire the Masquerade comic? Technically, that is a question. Much love. Deep thanks. Kim, last name withheld. I just wanted to give you an opportunity to talk about your Vampire the Masquerade comic if you wanted to. Yes. So the Vampire the Masquerade comics were something that I did as a co-writer with the lead writer is my husband and sometimes co-writer Blake Howard. He is a incredible storyteller. He's run, he's run games for the official like White Wolf Twitch and stuff Mm -hmm. like that. And he's just a, a, He's also a brilliant script writer. He works, he's a, or a script reader and writer. He works as like a script reader and editor, and he's also a writer himself. And I was reached out to by Tim Seeley to work on the Vampire of the Masquerade comics with him. And I said, I, you know, there's actually someone who I think would be better at this and I will, you know, I'll co-write because that's a really common thing in comics. When yeah. you co-write with someone, it doesn't mean that they're not capable. It's just like a... a thing where you're like if often if someone is new to the medium right yeah not that Blake was new to comics he is uh, he was one of the people that got me into superhero comics back when we met. but new to writing um, them on that kind of stage yeah yeah so I co-wrote with him and it was incredible and he he's an incredible writer I really recommend those comics my fingerprints are on them but they really are his work in an incredible way and I can't recommend them enough we wrote the backup stories so they're about the Anarchs. So if you know anything about Vampire the Masquerade, the Camarilla or Camarilla. The Camarilla, it's Camarilla. Let's be, it's Latin, right? So we can right, say I think Camarilla. so. Julia Drusilla, that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah, whatever. So the Camarilla are like the main story that Tim writes and then Blake and I wrote the Anarchs. The Rebels, tales, yeah. The backups, yeah. So they're really fun. We made like a cast of characters. You know, I love making a team. So we made like a team of characters we really loved. And there's some just incredible stories that Blake wrote recommend checking this out thank you so much for your kind words you know you heard me earlier in the episode talk about how important that Richter and Apocalypse scene was to me so that it helped you is all I could hope for so thank you 
Maddie Cowell writes, hello, big fan of you and Teeny, and I'm loving the new Catwoman run. This new Catwoman run can be delightfully campy. How deliberate is that on Teeny's part? How does one thread the needle between good camp and cheesiness? It is fun. Yeah, a, a big part of that is that Nico's art is just so like lovable and mm-hmm. cute. Nico and I both really love manga, which is also very good at going back and forth between like the serious and the silly. Yeah. Also, Nico lives in Japan, so like he's very surrounded by very in um, that manga. world. That's yeah. also why there are a lot of parts of our Gotham that might look a little bit more like Tokyo in parts because I'm like, you know, Gotham is a lot. It's supposed to be in every city. It's New York. It's London. It's a right. lot of cities. So why not? Also not just be Northern Hemisphere, Western cities. It should have architecture from all over if it's this world city, right? Yeah. And I think that it's a cool way to make the city, make parts of the city that look new and different. So it's kind of this like, there's parts of it that look like, it's still very Gothic, but it's like Gothic Tokyo in parts. I love it. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. That's also just me, man. Like I laugh about (laughs) stuff. You just write stuff that makes me laugh, honestly. So there's that line that I made myself laugh with really hard in the first issue of Catwoman that I wrote that's something like oh like Catwoman on stage like at a titty bar like if I shoot you this will be all those dreams I've been having or a nudie bar is what he says yeah like it's more <laughs> like it's really bleak humor but like part of the fun for example for me of writing like Black Mask is coming up with like really fucked up disgusting things that a man say. can say right Just, yeah. yeah and it's things that I can write that I feel like maybe a male writer couldn't get away with but mm. I'm like what are you gonna do I've heard that a dozen times like I will say like the murder that happens in the second issue of that that run I think that I was much more receptive to that from a female writer and it's a story that's important is the thing you know like women in these situations are relentlessly abused and victimized yeah I mean it's you know it's a joke to put a sex worker's body in a dumpster for some people and yeah like, they think it's hilarious and you were like oh I don't think it's hilarious but and neither it happens so I'm not going to pretend it doesn't happen in Gotham City you know and that specifically it's not like it doesn't happen because she you know because um, she did anything wrong or, right like yeah it, it, it in, in fact happens because she does the right thing and right. she shows herself to be a real woman with thoughts and feelings outside of the prop she is to these men and that makes her not only dangerous i mean we've all seen sopranos i was just gonna say it reminds me of university which is one of the best episodes of sopranos but one of the things it's like if i never watch that again in my entire life will be fine yeah probably. yeah exactly it's like, it's, you know it's that same thing of like it is a part of the you know the i, I love mobster movies i love mm-hmm. you know martin scorsese is one of my favorite directors i'm a huge fan girl i i love crime movies and stuff like you know going back to movie recommendations like the thing I always say is like the one of my biggest inspirations on Selena is the way women are in Scorsese movies it's yeah absolutely it's you know Karen in Goodfellas Sharon Stone in Casino like like I watch Scorsese movies for the girls you know I think you do everything for the girls and the girlies the girls gays and bay yeah the girls gays and bay I appreciate that the girls gays days and bay the girls gays days and bay you're absolutely right one of the real fun things and interesting things about superhero comics as a genre is because they're so tropey, you can like really take quick shortcuts where you're like, you know, this trope, fuck it, burn it down. Right. And also the reader will follow you because they know the language that you're using because they're mm-hmm. familiar with the genre. So that's helpful. As yeah. Well. And it's also, you know, it's when you, there's something I love about, someone said about, you know, Mad Max Fury Road, which is a favorite movie of mine. And it's like, you know, one of the wives dies and it doesn't feel like fridging because there's like six other women. And also because it's because of a very heroic affirmative choice that she Yes, makes. yes. And it's like, it's, it was kind of the same moment for me as like. It's also Jason Statham's wife. And I just was thinking about Jason Statham the whole time because I love Jason Statham. She was great in that film. I just was like, yeah. man, 
they must have the most beautiful children was sort of my thought. <laughs> Maddie then asks, how does one enter the comic book industry as a writer editor? That's a huge question. But if you want to share a little bit about yourself, he says, it can seem very impenetrable from the outside. I'm interested in learning more about how people migrated to the industry and what their career paths have looked like. As a project manager, I really love when guests like Teeny or Leah Williams are on the pod and give some insight into the process of creating the awesome comics that are defining this X moment. I left comic books around 1995 and the stuff coming out of the X office now has been inspiring and reawakening. If Teeny cares, I'm practicing comics analysis using Catwoman and I wrote about it here. If she wants to read my unfiltered praise for her work. Please be kind. We all have to start somewhere. Thanks, Maddie. I know you don't read that stuff, but I thought that was cute that he threw That's that That's very there. sweet. Yeah. Oh, thank you. You know, everyone breaks in differently. Um, the biggest thing you can do is have comics that you can show to people. It's, I don't, it's been harder because over the past two years, you know, we haven't had any cons. Right. That was a big part of my career was going to cons Yes, they're very expensive, but you know, I didn't fly really for the most part with very few exceptions. I didn't fly to cons until I was getting flown there because I couldn't afford it. I did a lot of pounding the pavement at like local cons and, you know, just talking to people. And and also you know, so the biggest thing you gotta do is make a comic of some kind. That's what I'm working on right now. Like it's, it's, yeah. it is the thing. Like if you don't have something to show people, like no matter how much they like you, you can't pitch them without something to show them, you know? Yeah, I did not have the resources to hire an artist myself. So I was looking for contests and I found the Top Cal Talent Hunt and I submitted to that. And it was such an incredible contest. It was, you'd submit a full 20 page script based on one of their prompts. And if they liked it, they would hire you an artist from their new artist that they were also having do their own contest. And they put you together. And I got to make a 20 page issue of a comic that came out through Image Comics with my name on it. It was a Magdalena story, right? It was a Magdalena story. I love Magdalena. Talk about Catholic queer weirdness. Yeah. It was also a, a you know, unpredictable or predictably for me, it was like a medieval history comic. <laughs> well, I also would like this is just if Top Cows, listen, you would write the best like witchblade historical mini with like some historical witchblade person. Girl, I've pitched it. <laughs> shit like no shit. like I, no shit i have like a pitch that's like like yeah you know, like the witchblade of like through history 1572 yeah. yeah no exactly yeah i mean that was part of why i wrote the magdalena story I yeah did, was you because you can do was, like that with her for sure yeah there was like 1600 years of that spear being nowhere and i was like where was it during the crusade right well that's big question notable like <laughs> well, yeah when it was like well how did it get from the middle east to europe and it was like oh, how did everything yep. get from the exactly. middle east to they europe? stole it right exactly. <laughs> exactly it was plundered in a crusade so yeah i got and then from there you know it, it, believe me I thought when that would come out they'd be you know knocking on my door to write Batman the next day and that's not how it <laughs> happened but I had something I had a portfolio I submitted anthologies I did some anthology stories until I had a couple things where I felt like if I, and I put you know if I met an editor at a con usually they wouldn't you wouldn't usually give them a copy of my comic but we'd shake hands we'd exchange cards I could email them after and say here's, you know, this 12 page superhero story I did for anthology. Here's this 20 page horror story I did. Here's a four pager I did in this anthology. And I would just do everything I could, any work I could find. I wrote a creator owned series through Black Mass, the publisher. They, that was also a situation where I was reached out to. I got to submit an idea and the publisher was able to front the costs for an artist for me. But that took me a couple of years. It is a slow grind. I have been working in the industry publishing. I won the Top Cat Talent Hunt in 2013 and it's 2022. It's been almost 10 years. But it's different for everyone. You know, there are people who got into comics after me who I would say moved faster than I did. And that's fine. It's okay. You're on your own journey. You know, I wouldn't have wanted to be at the level I am now any sooner. I feel like I'm only just now good enough to be at this. <laughs> 
Well, because it is learning on the job. It's like, here's your first really ongoing, is. figure it out. Yeah, absolutely. Deep end. Yeah, it really is. So the best thing I can say is just find a way to make comics in whatever way works for you. There's no right or wrong way. And in fact, the wrong way is often exciting. So just make comics and, and also take notes when you make comics and people look at them and they say what doesn't work. That's free advice. And it's whether sometimes it sucks to hear it. But like when you're still new um, and you're going to people, and I don't mean like everyone, like you post something on Twitter and people are like, this sucks, like fuck them. But like, if you show something to your trusted editor friend or your trusted peer or someone in the, someone that you might be know or be friends with who does have experience making comics or in the industry, let them teach you. <laughs> like I said earlier, even if you don't like the note, understand that they're bumping on something and try to figure out what that is. There's a reason for the note, even if you don't agree with their conclusion. The note means that a note in your symphony is not mm-hmm. harmonizing correctly. So you mm-hmm. need, something needs to be tweaked. Last thing, this is going back to Harry from Ireland. I just moved this all the way down to the bottom. What are some current comic books, regular books, or media in general that you are enjoying? Teeny, is there anything that you would recommend? Oh my gosh. Okay. So what have I read recently and loved? Comics-wise, I chewed through, at the recommendation of my pal Chip, I chewed through Tokyo Tyrareba Girls, which is a kind of like slice of life manga about this like writer in her 30s in Tokyo who's unmarried and her like girlfriends. Christmas cake. Yeah, exactly. They're all like (laughs) worried about, I like Tarareba means like what if. So it's like they're the manga is often them sitting around being like, what if this? And like, it'll make you really hungry because all the girls always meet at this pub and they eat like Japanese snacks and beer. And it always makes me really hungry because that's what my favorite kind of a bar is like where I can go and get like snack ramen. Bar with snacks. The Poro. Yeah. I love specifically Japanese pubs are like some of my favorite. It's great. And it, it really blew my mind. It's again, one of those stories that if you're enjoying things that go from serious to silly, um, like that book will make you cry and laugh from chapter to chapter. Uh, and I got it all at my local library. <laughs> Let's see. Oh, wait, I have a little list of the books. Oh, I read the Overstory this year, the Pulitzer Prize winning Overstory, which was incredible. If you want something that's just going to like absolutely recontextualize the whole world, trees down for you, you can read that one. I read This Is How You Lose the Time War, which was very mm. popular. My friend Max Gladstone, he's great. He's really good. And Amal Motar, who's also lovely. I just don't know her as well as I know Max. Yeah, brilliant poet. Very good book. So those are some books I've read. And then if you if you like nonfiction, I read A Paradise Built in Hell by Rebecca Solney, which is an incredible book about how when society breaks down and how disaster movies and things are and things like Don't Look Up are often very wrong in the ideas that we will not take care of each other in a crisis is actually born out of authoritarian mindsets and that the... Um, humankind is actually much, much more uh, likely to support and care for one another in times of crisis. That's heartening to hear after the last couple of years. <laughs> An incredible book, really good to read right now. It'll really bolster you. Uh, film-wise, I just watched a bunch of the Oscar nominees this year mm-hmm. and Drive My Car and Power of the Dog blew me away. Dune as well, but I think we all loved it yep. and I loved it very much. But Drive My Car was my favorite, the Japanese film. Yeah, I haven't seen it yet, but everybody says it's like sensational. It was my favorite, but I also really loved Power of the Dog. I loved uh, seeing Jane Campion win for Best Director. Her That movie was so good. And I think it's also a really good example of a woman writer taking on a really mask story and doing it well, which I think we, I mean, I can think of several male writers that do 
female stories, you know. We were talking about Ira Levin at the uh, at the beginning of the episode, like Rosemary's Baby, separate wives, both by a man. Exactly. But they're yeah. very intimate female stories. I, I think that's doable. But I agree that it's always interesting to me when someone. Yeah. Particularly when a woman takes on a genre that is not receptive to female talent. And I mean, I don't know if you know anything about this, TD. No, but, do uh, I? <laughs> Oh, do I? I've told people before, it's like, what's your book Captain Britain about? Is it relatable to you at all? I'm like, well, it's about a girl being told she can't do a boy's job. So yeah, uh, those are some films I really enjoyed. If you want some real garbage, if you like garbage television, I love 90 Day Fiance and I love Temptation Island. I was not going to reveal your Ink Master binge, but now I will bring up oh, that you watched so much Ink Master recently. I, I, oh my God. I like hate Ink Master though. Like I watch No, I know. Like I know that you're not like, recommending Ink Master, no. but we've talked a lot about Ink Master. I could do three hours on how much I hate Ink Master <laughs> and why. Um, and yet I've watched nine seasons. <laughs> and uh, if you're watching this season of Drag Race, I'm a Willow Pill stan, but I'm, I'm really pulling for Camden. I miss Cornbread. She was great. Yeah, she'll be back. I don't know, though. She was saying maybe she won't be. Uh, well, I mean, if she doesn't have to be, then just like go on tour and make your money now. Why go back on it right? if you're already this? But honestly, sometimes going back is a mistake because they don't love mm-hmm. you as much the second time. Not going to name any it's names, true. but it's true. Uh, it's true. But yeah, those are my, those are my cultural uh, touch points lately. Drag Teeny. And reality TV. <laughs> nonfiction. Teeny, thank you so much for doing this. We, I told you we'll do like an hour and it's been three. That's just because it's so easy to chat with you that I didn't rush us. But I know that you have pages to write, so I'm going to let you go. You've been very it. generous with your time. And it's actually 6.16 p.m. How about that? Oh, y'all. I mean, I haven't decided. I'm either never going to say 6.16 again and go into hiding or I'm going to make and sell t-shirts. I mean, the, <laughs> some of the preview stuff for Knights of X has said 616 and I knew I know that you I know that you tried I'm sure you tried yeah no that's just that's the only time that fans ever yelled at me enough to change something it's <laughs> the only time it's ever worked and I hope you guys like that one because it'll never happen again Earth 616 is the truth and we all know it anyway thank you for coming on thanks for chatting with the Zala gang this will go up pretty soon i'm gonna like get this i'm gonna turn this around really quickly i think actually of course because i don't have to write a character file for it and no nope. can just and i don't really have to i'm like frankly if they're listening to the patreon and they're still listening after three fucking hours they don't really need me to edit that much of this i'm just gonna edit out the parts where we were like let's cut that it wasn't great yeah whatever. like we just didn't well, that's a bad answer or whatever <laughs> like, we're not, like, yeah exactly. i'll cut the parts or- where we're like we'll cut that but otherwise i think i'm just gonna throw this up and we're just gonna let it all all of my uhs is just oh like- i have an app now that that takes them out and unfortunately like I, it's crazy i have to pay for it but it's it has saved me a lot of time yeah i mean you have to i still have to go through and like hit they, it plays every all like 300 ums for me in context and, and i go delete them? that one or don't but well, you, you can just take them all out but i tried that and so there are a couple episodes it's just happened in the separate cuckoos episode i was like that set fans aflame but in the final episode when i was listening back to it i was like shit because it goes that set fan flame well thank you for having me love to the zala gang and the discord crew you guys are so sweet i send her the nice things that you say sometimes and some of the funny ones uh, yeah you guys are really funny and connor and i also make you know, stupid X-Men jokes all the time. So I'm glad. Right. That- yeah. It's good to share the X-Men jokes. I think. I want you to know that the Narvel joke fucking got me and it got Blake too. We were cackling. Narvel real is the meme now in the Discord. They're like, Narvel real. Narvel is real. Because so for people who are not in the Sriwa Discord all the time, everybody got an email if they had bought the first issue of Patch, the new Larry Hama Wolverine historical miniseries. And it was like, 
significant editorial changes have been made. Please re-download. And everyone's like, what the hell is that? And then someone else said, oh, I just got it about Spider-Man. And so Discord user Prop Comedy popped up and said, oh, they accidentally put Narvel with an N on the cover of every comic this week. And I 100% believe, because here's the thing. I've seen a lot of typos in comic books in my time. This is right. thing that happens. Like, this stuff is made on a really quick schedule. Hey, Galm. Yeah, Galm. I actually, that's literally, when I thought it was true, I wrote Galm Narvel was my exact response. Here's the funniest thing about it. I should know better because they would never type Marvel on the cover of a book. No, it would, would, be, a, it would be an image. Assets. Right. Of course, the assets already exist. But, but I believed it. I, I believed did it. Immediately. I was, was like, like oh, yeah. no. I, was, I almost messaged Jordan. Like, is this real? And I know. And, I, and then someone was like, oh, my God, is this true? And he goes, oh, no, I'm joking. I'm like, oh, my God, Teeny, no. And I'm like texting. And I, I said in the Discord, I was like, I texted Teeny about Marvel and I want you to know that's how much I believed that Marvel was real. I kept just like thinking of it <laughs> snorting throughout the day like Karen from Mean Girls just like quietly like, like you can't stop yourself right Marvel <laughs> Marvel anyway until next time Zala gang Nake Nine Marvel and <laughs> thank you for listening you should subscribe to Teeny's Substack the Scorpio Room yes there's gonna be big things coming soon and it's the only place on the internet where you can hear from her because she is a wise person who is not on social media anymore you're on Instagram again that's fun I am and look I always say Thoreau had to go into the woods to write and he didn't even have a phone so no he did have his wife come cooking meals though which he just like conveniently does not mention in the book oh my husband cooks for me <laughs> yeah but like if I'm writing Walden and my wife is making me a meal every <laughs> sure. night Live simply. It's a little melodramatic, Henry David, but whatever. Live simply. Only have servants you're married to. Yeah, exactly. Well, thank you so much again, Teeny. The next secret file, apart from the mailbags, Zoe Tunnell and Valentine Smith will be on to talk about Rachel and Betsy. We're going to go through every issue that they have ever appeared in together and talk about every time they've ever interacted for no particular reason. Weird. Do they know each other? Yeah, they might have met. Thanks again. Love you all. Talk to you soon. Bye. Bye! X-Men, X-Men! In the 21st century, evil mutants led by Magneto aim to destroy the world. The only hope is 